Hello, and welcome to Ghost Divers. This is an anime podcast. I am your host, Neve, and I'm joined by my other co-host, Connor. Hey. And I just launched right into this. Um, we are covering episodes 8 through 13 of Revolutionary Girl Utena. This is the second half of the Student Council saga. So, I don't know if you have initial thoughts going in. This is such an uh, intriguing show. I'm really having a good time watching through it. Um, yeah, let's uh, let's go ahead and I'll elaborate on that later, probably. Um, you you do the first synopsis here. Oh, of course, right. Um, so uh, yeah, uh, we start with a very crow high type episode um, again. <laughs> Um, you're not you're not gonna do my joke of we start with episode eight crow ha- sorry curried high trip <laughs> oh that's how you want me to deliver that okay. yeah we start with episode eight crow high i mean <laughs> wow what a hilarious mistake curried high trip i mean um, it makes sense that you would make this mistake <laughs> since this episode is such a crow high episode <laughs> yes yes and uh in this very crow high episode um did we mention that it's very crow high um, we start once again with the fable of Utena and the prince, um, which we all know very well at this point. Yeah. After the fable, we open on Anthe cooking curry and learn that uh, Nanami has swapped out the uh, normal curry powder for the nine billion fold spice uh, as some sort of uh, prank. Suddenly there is an explosion, <laughs> um, like a comically large explosion. Yeah. Uh, as the episode progresses, we learn that the Curry explosion did a Freaky Friday on Utena and Anthe, where they have swap bodies, and we then get to see shots of Anthe um, doing all of Utena's standard badass butch activities, uh, like crushing people in basketball, um, and then Utena like doing Anthe's standard activities of cleaning and keeping house. Um, yeah. Uh, Nanami goes to India to find more of the spice. Um, because this isn't what she wanted at all. She wanted to like to murder. Uh, is it? It's Utena, right? That she wants to kill, or is it? Yeah, I don't Anthe? know. I don't know if it was like to kill Utena or just like get revenge in a in a convoluted way that is not like this. <laughs> yeah. So this isn't what she wanted at all. Um, so she goes to India to find more of the spice, uh, so she can reverse it. Uh, and hijinks ensue. Um, there's just like a series of like <laughs> uh, slapstick like run-ins with elephants. Yeah, uh, and usually the I just want to like do this one gag because it's great. Usually it is the elephant like running and like hitting her and her friends like all in a line. Um, and then there's one where they're all going across like a, a rickety bridge and the elephant starts going and it like shows you the shot where you're expecting them to like the elephant to then hit them all in a line again. But instead the bridge just collapses and it's great. <laughs> it's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. They are. They, there's like this repeating gag and it's like, it's pretty hilarious. Um, <laughs> meanwhile, uh, Sionji meets with quote unquote, Anthe, who's actually Utena, uh, to share his exchange diary. Um, Anthe, like, suggests that she only... So it's revealed that Anthe and Sionji have been, like, doing this exchange diary together. Um, Anthe suggests she only kept it up because Utena didn't didn't tell her to stop. Um, Which, hmm. 
uh, I don't know. Uh, but uh, then like says, encourages Utena to write in it uh, on her behalf. Um, yeah. Since Uten- Utena is Anthe right now. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, you got to do what Anthe would do, which is write in the diary. Um, Utena is slipping through the diary and she sees Saiwanji has done a crude drawing of himself defeating an ugly Utena uh, and winning back Anthe. So she writes as Anthe, uh, what essentially perverted idiot, I think is the translation. Um, yeah. Or it's like idiomatic, but that's like the, um, it, that's the, the gist of it. Um, Nanami then returns from India only to slip on a banana peel and spill the powder, which is immediately blown away by another elephant. And there's no way to get more. Um, <laughs> however, uh, it is then revealed that Anthe never actually used the 9 billion fold spice originally. Uh, it was just her weird cooking that caused the explosion. Um, so she makes more curry. And then uh, as they go to eat it, Sionji comes to confront them. Uh, they then have Sionji eat some of the curry. And in the explosion, Utena and Anthe return to normal. Uh, but hilariously, Sionji and Chuchu switch bodies. Um, <laughs> and, the, and then the final, the final shot of Sionji in the tree eating the banana is like one of the most Krohai moments in the show. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, there's there's <laughs> shots of the aftermath of this um, that are yeah pretty hilarious. Um, so yeah, that's episode eight. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like this is one that. I feel like we can talk about a little bit, but I think the the bulk of our episode is going to be like nine through twelve here. Um, I kind of just like intentionally broke this one off, being like, like I was almost tempted to put this at the end of our our previous episode as well, but um, I kind of figured we could just do it here. It it kind of stands on its own in it in a way. Um, yeah, I don't know if you have any like super immediate thoughts. Um, I think the the one thing that I find interesting here. Um, especially for like getting into what's going to happen in the rest of this, this arc is some of this question around like Anthe's intentions. Mm-hmm. Um, because again, like she's been doing this exchange journal supposedly with Sionji. I um, mean, continuing to do it while, while with Utena seems to like be the implication. Um, although it's kind of unclear, like when they last exchanged. Um, and, we also get some like depiction of um, sexuality when like <laughs> Sionji's opening up the shirt to, to give the exchange diary. Um, but there's a certain amount to which like Anthe seems to then like in it. It's hard to tell is this like, Oh, you now know, and I should just let you do it because I'm the Rose bride. Or is she like intentionally playing at like, this has happened. This is a way that I can then have Utena do it. And Utena will be the one who will like end this. Like I can like force Utena's hand in a way. Um, because I know what like Sionji writes. I can, I can encourage Utena to, to read it, to write back. I know that Utena is going to get mad and it will end this. Um, it's kind of hard to like read exactly what is all of her intentions here, but there, there is a degree to which it seems like, Anthe is very happy to play at the switch here where she Mm. can kind of operate briefly outside of the Rosebride system because of the way that things are like 
being reconfigured for a moment. Um, and it never goes all the way to like fully confirm anything going on in, in Anthe's head on this behalf, but there's just like the diary part in particular, I think is what really starts calling into question some of that because it is the one where like the way that she talks to Utena about like, well, you should be the one to write in the diary is one of the parts that, especially up till this moment in the the series, feels the most of, like, Anthe actually asserting something that she wants someone else to do um, in a way that she just, like, has not up until this point. Yeah. Um, I, I definitely think the diary thing is significant. Um, I think it plays into, like, we can have a, a slightly larger discussion about just Sionji because um, this is kind of the arc where, like, at least as far as I know, like, you know, he, he gets expelled and then he goes away for a while um, or permanently. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but we can give our little like, you know, final reads on on Sionji, um through like the course of this um, of this Ghost Divers episode. Um, I think this is an important part. There is like a. It's an intriguing read that you have, and I think there's like. It, it's a good one. Um, I also think it's a little bit jarring to see, like... So, Anthe is, like, with Utena now. She's not the Rose Bride for Sionji. So, like, she doesn't... That relationship is not, like, coercive in the same way that it was. And we can mm-hmm. kind of read into, like, given Sionji's violence towards Anthe, like, oh, you know, is he still, like coercing her into this diary thing because she's like afraid of him because he's been violent towards her and stuff but like that so that's that's a possibility but i think it's also like there's also indications that anthe is like doing this of her free will uh in some regard um because again it's like the explanation that she offers to Utena is like, oh, you didn't tell me not to. Which, in accordance with, like, how we know the Rose Bride thing works, it... the it, Like, Utena not giving a command is not like, oh, you know... What am I trying to say here? Um, Anthe, I think, is, like, acting in her own free will whenever, like, in an absence of command from Utena, right? So it's not like she has to listen to Sionji unless Utena says otherwise. Like, she can not, like, choose to not do this diary shit. But she is doing it. Um, And apparently, like, for some time. um, Because there's already, like, it seems like a fair amount of content in this diary. Yeah. Um, Although there... The, the one thing I think complicates that in my like read of what's happening too, is that I think what comes up throughout these episodes is also the way that like, um, to some degree, Anthe seems bought into the Rose Bride thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of unclear to like, what degree does this system like actually compel her to follow it? Or is she really just choosing to like follow the rules of the game that she's the Rose Bride? Um, but there's a certain thing that you could do. There's a certain position you could take of Anthe, like continuing to do actions until told otherwise by like the person that she's currently betrothed to, because in some ways that's like the best way to, um, like 
kind of maintain like this is this is my position as the rose bride is like it's almost this like internal logic of like I will continue to kind of do what I what I've been doing and whatever people will set up for me until like the new person directly contradicts those orders like you can read it that way mm-hmm. um you can also read it as she's intentionally doing these things because she's not being told not to yet and she's making that choice yeah but there is a certain amount to which you can read as like she doesn't really make any choices she just continues to do what she's like told until she's told something else and so like until someone tells like until Utena tells her not to do something that she was doing previously she will kind of continue to do that um outside of like the clear demarcations of the rose bride being like oh, okay i like move in with you like these things happen sure um, yeah um and i think that's like a standing question here yeah. um the the thing that's interesting to me about this episode is how it like it starts to complicate the portrayal of Sionji. Um, and uh, he, um, the portrayal of Sionji becomes like somewhat complex, actually. Um, we talked last time, like about how he, his position is like the most immediately hateable character, because I mean, the first thing we see of him is like being this horrible, abusive, like, you know, asshole, um, and he's like, you know, this first representative of like patriarchal gender norms, he's defined by his violence. Um, and then like all of that stuff just keeps getting exaggerated and exaggerated until like in this episode, it, it pretty much like he morphs into more of a like comedic figure. Um, and then ultimately I think in some ways he is, becomes an empathetic figure um specifically in like uh Utenda says at one point oh i'm starting to feel uh starting to feel sorry a little sorry for Sionji. um i think this is in relation to just like how little anthe cares about him um or like how anthe is treating this whole like diary situation and how like clueless Sionji is um yeah he like the show makes him this figure of like marginal empathy um, without like excusing or mitigating his violence. Um, And I think the like diary thing ties into that where it's like, okay, you know, there is like, Sionji is continually insisting on like that there's this substance to his relationship with Anthe. Um, and as the viewer, we're like, okay, that's like, it's just the delusions of like a possessive, like asshole. Um, but the show is like, it, it kind of insisting a little bit here. They're like, okay, well, maybe there is like a little bit more substance than we like initially thought. Um, and, uh, the, the diary thing is like an, an important crux in all of this, I think. Um, yeah. And we can read it like, you know, two ways, uh, which is like, you know, the way that you uh, articulate it. And then there's also like, you know, Anthe doesn't seem perturbed with like Utena being taken away by Sionji when, uh, when the body swap, like, first happens 
And you would think, like, oh, well, knowing how Sionji treats Anthe, like, Anthe would immediately be like, oh my god, Utena, like, is going to be abused in this same way. Um, yeah. So we're, we start to think this, and then it's like, oh, this diary, like, here's this tender, like, emotional thing that I'm trying to share with you. And uh, it, it, it's it's part of this arc that is, like, happening for Sionji um, that I think is, like, developed a little bit more um, in the next episode, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's it, it has ended up being a kind of complex uh, portrayal um, that you can look at in a few different ways. Yeah. Um, I feel okay with going on to the next episode if you do. Um, yeah, the only other thing I'll say is, like, the body swapping, it's played for laughs, but it's also, like, complicating the plays on identity um, that all we're getting throughout, you know, the series so far. Um, so, you know, just noting that here, um, the comedy is also bringing out the this main theme. Yeah. Um... So, the the rest I've I've kind of all put around. Um, I think they all, although in the beginning we get like more characters and that kind of drills down more into Toga, but um, <clears throat> I think that all four of the episodes like kind of revolve around Toga as this like emerging. Um, I would say like the primary antagonist for the the first yeah. arc at least. Yeah. Um, and so we kind of start with like. You know, the, the first episode that we're going to go through doesn't really have a duel, but kind of does. Um, and then we get the duel with Nanami, and then we get two two duels with Toga. Um, but then, like, Nanami's duel also is, like, even within the show specifically figured as being, like, Toga's duel that Nanami is doing for him. Um, but we'll, we'll get into the synopsis now. So episodes 9 through 12. Um, episode 9 is The Castle Said to Hold Eternity. So we start with a, um, not a, like, Rose Bride duel, just a, a regular, we are fighting with, like, kendo sticks or whatever, um, duel between Toga and Sionji. Um, and as part of this, we also get flashbacks to when Toga and Sionji were younger, and they came across a church where there was a funeral. Um, men in suits came and said they were looking for a missing girl whose parents had died. Uh, they then entered the church and found three coffins. Um, Toga opens one of them. Um, it's the, the one on the far left. I, I don't know why he chooses this one, but he does. And inside is a pink haired girl mourning the death of her parents. Um, Toga touches her hair saying that he's an ally to all girls and he's chivalrous. <laughs> um, this is the moment when we know for sure that he's the villain. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> then, uh, the next day the girl kind of is no longer in the coffin. It has returned. Um, and Sionji, who's kind of been the, the, um, like perspective character for this flashback, um, assumes that Toga must have gone back and done something. Although Toga says that he didn't. Um, but like Toga had kind of challenged Sionji, like, um, I forget exactly what he says. It's like, you know, prove to her. Um, I don't, it's been a little while. Show her eternity. Yeah, show her eternity. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, 
Sayonji's assuming that Toga did something because he didn't. Um, and this girl returned. Um, in the, the present, we have a meeting with the student council where um, Juri shares that Utena came to the school because of a prince. And um, with this information, Toga then goes to be really creepy at Utena again and says, wasn't your prince someone like me? Um, Sionji gets a letter from the end of the world saying that the castle will fall tonight. And so he kidnaps Anthe and drags her to the castle. Um, however, s- somehow he's knocked out. We aren't sure how. Um, before Utena arrives, who, who finds out, who gets a call, I, I believe from Toga, um, that Anthe, or that, uh, Sionji is taking Anthe to the castle. Utena arrives and finds that Sionji is knocked out and, like, floating face down in water, um, and kind of, rescues him from that situation, uh, wakens him. They, they see that the, the forest gate that leads to the dueling arena has been opened. Um, they go up and they find that at the center of the arena, there is a coffin that's similar to the one that Toga opened that, um, you know, in that flashback seemed to have Utena inside and inside in a very similar position is Anthe. Um, the castle above then begins to crumble and fall to the earth um, and these platforms rise up out of the the arena as well. Uh, Utena does a destiny platforming section um, and reunites with Anthe. And at the moment of like Utena getting to the coffin, uniting with Anthe, everything resets. Um, in it falling, we even saw like part of the castle crush Sionji. Um And uh, Utena is kind of, you know trying to, like, take care of Anthe, basically, when Sionji tries to attack her. But Toga appears seemingly out of nowhere and takes the blow instead. Um, When Utena asks him why, he says, because your prince was someone like me, right? Because I'm chivalrous. Um, And then in the final moments, we see Toga, there's, like, uh, a curtain over, but seemingly in bed with naked women, at least two naked women. They seem to be naked (laughs) and is speaking on the phone. Um, And in this conversation, we learn that Sionji was expelled and Toga says someone who believes in friendship is a fool. Yeah. And so a lot of that episode. Yeah. It's revealed that he's like orchestrated this whole, like this whole thing basically. Um, In the following episode uh, titled Nanami's precious one. um, uh, We open with Sionji leaving the school um, as he's leaving, he gives his exchange diary, uh, in, in a, like, touching, ch- uh, gesture of trust. He gives his exchange diary to Toga. The one he knows for sure will be able to keep this very precious, this thing that's so precious to him, uh, to keep it safe. Uh, he gives it to Toga, who promptly burns it. Um, because Toga is actually, like, doesn't give a shit about Sayonji at all. Um, the student council uh, discusses who will duel Utena next. Um, it's clearly supposed to be Toga, uh, but due to his injury, uh, Miki and Juri both volunteer to duel in his stead. Uh, however, he doesn't seem concerned about it. Uh, we then cut to Nanami uh, slapping Utena for getting her brother injured. Uh, you know, so, so she thinks. Um, as the episode progresses, we get these intercut flashbacks to a time that Nanami caught a kitten for Toga for his birthday. Uh, but uh, eventually became jealous of his affection for the cat um, because it was taking his attention away from her. Uh, So she put the the cat in a box and pushed it into the river. 
Um, and then intercut with these flashbacks are um, the present events are unfolding, um, including Toga, uh, or including Nanami Nanami asking, for asking for Toga for a kiss uh, in this moment of like desperation, um, to which he responds, I can't, we aren't children anymore. Um, as well as a scene where Utena and Anthe arrive to Toga's birthday party, um, where Nanami continues to challenge Utena. And Anthe eventually presents Toga with a kitten as a gift, uh, paralleling the story of the flashback um, and further driving Nanami into uh, madness. Um, when Nanami once again challenges uh, Utena, uh, challenge meaning in, in this context, like, uh, you know, just like calling her out, uh, Toga yeah. gives her a rose signet ring so that she can actually challenge Utena in the formal sense of, like, a rose duel. Yeah. Um, although Utena handily wins the duel uh, by knocking the flower off of Nanami's chest, because Nanami is not a uh, trained uh, fighter, Nanami continues to fight, uh, caring less about the duel and more just wanting to hurt Utena. Uh, however, at a critical moment, Toga shouts, That's enough! And finally, Nanami stops. Um, and... Uh, the episode concludes with Toga telling Nanami, you don't have to fight anymore now. I'll protect you. Um, like cradling her in this, um, you know, moment of his own uh, apparent triumph. Um, also, I forgot to put it in the synopsis, but when he says that's enough, um, her she misses with her blade and hits the wall behind Utena and her her sword breaks and the piece flies and like it cuts the braids out of her hair um which we'll see her with her her hair down later as well um next episode here uh graceful and ruthless the one who picks the flower so we open on Utena uh Wakaba and eventually Anthe having what is a completely normal bento box much to the consternation of everyone who assumed that it would just be full of the weirdest shit. Um the final thing is uh Chuju who has eaten all of the food but it was still just like a normal. It is all um like it's like snack what like yakisoba like it's all yeah fair takoyaki. food and it's all like yeah takoyaki. Um it's all these like grilled fair food things, but it's still fairly normal Japanese food. <laughs> um, anyway, while this is happening, Toga observes creepily from a distance. And if I remember correctly, it's Miki who comes up and is like, what are you doing? Um, and he says, looking at a lonely princess, which yeah. just fuck this guy. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, <laughs> we then watch as Toga gaslight gate keeps the girl boss Utena by calling himself your prince and continually trying to imply that he's the prince that saved Utena. Um, which that flashback may confirm, who knows. Mm-hmm. Um, and also telling her that Anthe doesn't actually want to be a normal girl. Uh, she just wants that because it's what Utena has commanded her to want. Um, he then challenges her to a duel and s- s- might be aware the, of the prince that descends from the castle yeah, he, to empower he Utena. Yeah, he is because yeah. He, like, he, he watched it happen in the one of the previous duels. He was like there to watch it happen. Yeah, it it's still yeah. th- there's I think a certain because he talks about the power of Dios, but it's unclear if he just recognizes that this, that something's happening or if he's actually aware that it's the prince, yeah. um, or at least I think that that could be uncertain to viewers at this point. Um, but he does like talk about the power of Dios, which question mark. Um, anyway, when Utena is about to strike him with the help 
again, still kind of unclear, but I'm, I'm going to just say help for right now of the prince. Um, uh, Toga stands down and like spreads his arms basically. And like has the, the sword kind of at his side. Um, and seeing this, Utena hesitates and lowers her blade um, and kind of stumbles in the, you know, she's been like charging the thrust. Um, and then that moment of uncertainty as she's kind of stumbling past him, Toga raises his blade uh, just in time to catch the rose and win the duel. Um, Utena then pleads for Toga not to take Anthea away from her. And when, um, Utena once again reiterates that Anthea just wants to be an ordinary girl. Toga has Anthea say that she likes being the Rose Bride, which again, <laughs> unclear because he has just won her as the Rose Bride and is asking yeah. her to say that. Yeah, we're, <laughs> um, we're going to, I think we need to look at this one, <laughs> this episode in, in more detail, uh, uh, in the in the coming minutes here, <laughs> yeah, there's there's a lot of like, there's a lot going on with with the way that Anthe is like figuring and in all into all of this. Um, and I, aside from the very very beginning where Anthe's not with Utena, this is like the only moment in all the episodes we've seen so far that Utena loses a duel and um, Anthe is in control of someone else again, or in the con- under yeah in control yeah. of someone else. That's correct. Um, Anyway, Utena continues to, to deny this, but um, Anthe does remain with Toga as his Rose Bride. Uh, in the following episode, uh, titled For Friendship, Perhaps, uh, Utena falls into a uh, deep depression after the loss of the duel and of Anthe. Um, uh, she skips class, so Wakaba goes to check on her. Uh, and finds that her uh, her normal uniform is damaged. Uh, Wakaba is like distressed by this uh, and offers to fix it, um, but Utenis is not to bother and just starts wearing the girl's uniform. Um, um, everyone loves this in yeah. the school. Yeah, not but, necessarily in the audience of people watching the, this anime, but everyone in the school seems to love this. Yeah, um, well, except well, Wakaba. Re- We'll revisit, yes, we'll revisit that in a minute, too. Um, at the student council meeting, uh, Toga sleazily glitz over his triumph um, over both Utena and Anthe. Um, jury comments that Utena, or sorry, Toga seems to have won not with skill, but with one of his plots. I think she, sa- she says, like, oh, you seem to favor plots. Um, mm-hmm. Which, yeah, we know this is true. Um, Toga seems to take this as a compliment because uh, he is a scheming bastard. Um, later Toga and Anthe, uh, Toga with Anthe in tow, uh, approach Utena and, and Wakaba in the cafeteria. Utena remains dejected, uh, and really passive as Toga continues to, like, hit on her. Um, it, this is, uh, this is a really brutal scene, uh, because Toga's just, like, like, leaning in, like, grabbing her shoulder and just doing like all kinds of sleazy shit. Um, and she's like, uh, just totally passive. We hate um, Toga on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes. Uh, so, um, Toga, it, and he's like asking Utena out, uh, in front of Wakaba and Anthe. Um, Wakaba finally snaps and throws a glass of water. Wakaba's, like, yelling at Utena to resist this, but she doesn't, so she finally snaps and throws a glass of water. 
Um, it's not clear where she's throwing it, uh, but it lands on Anthe. It's a possibility that she th- that she throws it at Anthe, or it's a possibility that, like Toga moves out of the way or something. Um, yeah. But then she yells at Anthe regardless, um, and is like basically, um, it's your fault that this has happened. Uh, you had a fight with Utena, and this is why she's like this. Yeah. Why can't um, you just make up, basically? Yeah. Um, she's, like, castigating Anthe, and then Utena, like, finally reacts to this and slaps Wakaba uh, for turning against Anthe. Wakaba then uh, slaps her back um, and is like, oh, so you can still react. Um, uh, later, um, we uh, we see Anthe and Toga, like, having, like, a, you know, a little tea date, Um Togo leaves to go on a date with another girl. Um, Anthe then, after he leaves, imagines Utena there in uh, Togo's seat. Um, Utena uh, goes to meet, kind of as this is happening, Utena goes to meet with Wakaba, apologizes for slapping her. uh, It's kind of explaining what happened. Utena is still like in her depression. Um, She's like explaining that she's just trying to be a normal girl now. Uh, and Wakaba shouts, like, it will not be normal, uh, is normal for you. Um, it's just employing her to, like, go back to the way she was. Uh, Utena finally concludes that Wakaba's right. She resolves, to, she resolves to take back who she was. Uh, she then goes to meet with Toga in the flower garden. Um, uh, he's, like, and, on a date with another girl, with Anthe just there. <laughs> yeah, he's making out with, like, another girl, and Anthe's in the background. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And Toga believes that uh, Utena has come to, like, give in and, you know, become his girlfriend or whatever. Uh, but instead, she challenges him to another duel. In, uh, like, a, kind of like a flashback, like, intercut, we see Juri presenting Utena with a sword to use in the duel uh, in order to set the last scene, uh, which is um, a reference to a conversation she had with Toga earlier. Um before the duel, uh, Toga reveals a technique that Utena was unaware of, uh, wherein he commands Anthe to bless the sword by putting her soul into the sword to protect it. Uh, apparently, this is the true power of the sword that uh, Utena was not aware of. We will have uh, no feelings about how this uh, scene I- is animated. Um, the the way that it is drawn, we'll have no feelings about it, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, given the individuals involved, it is... Uh, yeah, um, not a lot to be happy about. Um, so uh, Toga fights with his like power-up sword, um, dealing numerous blows to Atena, destroying her girl's uniform, uh, and breaking the well, almost breaking the sword that Juri gave her. He kind of cuts half halfway through it. Um, or I think he, I think he breaks it, and then he's like, she's fighting with half of it. I can't remember. Um, but uh, at the decisive moment, we, we get this very interesting internal monologue uh, from Anthe, um, which I don't think we've gotten before. Um, she seems to have given up hope that Utena can win. Uh, and yet, uh, as as the battle progresses, she starts to recall um, a uh, some past events uh, we haven't seen yet, um, where... Uh, Someone, I think it's suggested it's like Utena's prince or the prince, 
uh, one in similar circumstances. Uh, she says, oh, it's, I remember this. It's what happened that time. Um, and as she's remembering this, uh, the blessing on the sword breaks, uh, depowering the sword and allowing Utena to defeat Toga. Um, Anthe once again goes to greet Utena officially as the Rose Bride, uh, but Utena cuts her off saying, never mind that. Come on, let's go home. And that is the end of episode 12. Yeah. Um, so there, there's a lot here and I, I kind of, I wanted us to just put all four of these episodes together because I think there's stuff even we're talking about, like what happened in episode nine around the stuff with Sionji, where it's still pointing to stuff going on with Toga, where I feel like it'll be easier if we can kind of just jump around to some degree. Yeah. Yeah, um, I'm taking a deep breath here. Cause I'm like, there's so much, <laughs> you yeah. smash these episodes together and I'm like, oh man, there's so much stuff. <laughs> in these episodes we're gonna be analyzing these for a minute yeah so i figure we can we can start with episode nine still and kind of try and work through them but i just wanted to have like the synopses all at the front um so yeah the especially because i i think we talked a little bit about this with episode eight and like even our previous episode that you know, of the, the podcast, we, we got into a little bit of like some of the, what is Anthony's intentions here? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think really like some of the stuff gets the, like nine is where some of the stuff really starts breaking open. And then, um, again, as we went over with like 12, we get both like an actual internal monologue, which just never happened with Anthony, as well as that scene of, her imagining that it is Utena sitting in the seat um, where Toga was yeah. and having tea with her. Um, and so, especially 12 in particular, we start to get the like clearest suggestions of um, perhaps Anthe does want to be with Utena, but all of that is still kind of unclear and hazy. But like these little snippets that we finally get of in- her interiority, like kind of suggest that. Um, yeah. So, yeah, but but a lot I, of it is this, like, very, um, like, episode nine is just one of the weirdest ones, I think, <laughs> especially, like, at this point, to just be, like, the castle comes down, um, there's, like, coffins suddenly, like, <laughs> yeah, stuff I in, think... images are being brought in that haven't, have kind of been brought in, um, in, like, the fable, but are, like, being far more foregrounded suddenly, um, yeah. Um, I have a, a lot of thoughts on episode nine because I think it uh, is a good uh, it's a good flashpoint to start talking about stuff that is like high, it's like highly determining my read of the series as a whole. Um, but if I think we can talk about um, Amphi a, a little bit. Uh, first. I don't think it's going to mess anything up. Okay. Um, the So the thing with Anthe, um, so I think you're right. It There are some strong suggestions here um, of Anthe, like that Anthe's true like desire or her true interiority is like in some respect she wants to be um, with Utena. Uh I think that exists 
in a way that is also complicated um, by a couple other things. So, um, or the show is complicating this. Um, in episode 11, uh, there is a scene with like Toga hitting on Anthe. Um, he says some creepy stuff to her, but the point of like what he's really trying to do is he's trying to do this ploy to make Utena jealous because he's trying to like manipulate Utena. Um, so he goes to the like Rose Garden and he's hitting on Anthe, but he's clearly like expecting Utena to see and come like intervene. Yeah. Um, when Utena comes, they like Toga and Utena have an argument about this exact point of like Utena's like Anthe doesn't want to be the Rose Bride. Um, you know she just wants to be a normal girl. This is where she like first asserts this like position, and. Toga is like, oh, like, do you really think so? Like, blah, blah, blah. Um, and, like, to prove her point, Utena is like, Anthe, tell him. Like, tell him what you want. And then she, like, doesn't answer. And then Utena is like, no, like, tell him that you don't want to be the Rose Bride. And then, and then Anthe is like, oh, yeah, I don't. I want to be a normal girl or whatever. She like does. She says what Utena like asked her to say. Yeah. Um, it this moment is like this is a moment of irony, where Utena is like unwittingly, unintentionally, uh, forcing Anthe to say like that she doesn't like being the Rose Bride. Um, this is what Utena wants, and Utena is forcing Anthe to say this. Um, in this moment, like becoming the one who is undermining her agency. Uh, in the exact like same stroke that she's trying to get Anthony to assert her agency, um, and this just goes back to our discussion of like how the show the show is illustrating how these oppressive systems like co-opt us um, deviously into becoming their agents. Um, you mean that by by fighting to resist the dueling game, I am unwittingly becoming a participant in the dueling game. <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> um, by fighting to protect Sephiro, you are <laughs> you are unwittingly becoming a weapon of war uh, and and destruction. Um, wait, no, that, that was we already did that. Um, but uh, but yeah, just another permutation of this is like you know, Utena is falling into this trap where like. You know, she's trying to break this Rose Bride dynamic, um, but, uh, you know, she's actually just reasserting it and reactualizing it by, you know, making Anthe say this. Um, later dialogue, like, reaffirms this, um, where Utena uh, is, like, saying to herself, oh, yes, like, I have to protect Anthe. I know I can turn her into a normal girl. I won't let her take anyone from me. Oh, I won't let anyone yeah. take her from me. Um, which is this kind of possessive, um, this exact same, you know, uh, shades of, like, Sionji uh, and, and the other, like, um, Rose Grooms, like, possessing uh, Anthe, trying to make her into what they want her to be. Yeah, this, um, this is the most where we see Utena kind of falling into, like, the trap that we more explicitly saw happening with Miki. Um where, where he was also like, oh, I want her to be able to do what, what, what she wants, and what she wants is to play piano with me. 
Um, and in that we like very clearly, I think the, the show goes to greater lengths to show how like he's being controlling of her, but the show is also making you aware that that's, that's also what's happening with Utena. Um, but it's also somewhat complicated by like Utena's desires are a little bit more just like, it's not like I, I specifically, I think often the the way that the show is still figuring Utena here is not like, I want her to be with the, me because I want to possess her, but like, I want to be the one who has the Rose Bride because I believe that I can like somehow break her out of this system. Um, and so still like her intentions feel more altruistic than like Miki's, but she's also still falling into that trap. Um, and so, yeah, the, this, I, but like here, the series is still playing with that tension even more than I think like Miki stands to, um, to bring this uncertainty up earlier on, but in a clearer way. Whereas like here, it's a little bit more fraught. Yeah. Like even when you're explicitly trying to like, undo this system and free somebody from it like you are still actually <laughs> uh being co-opted um in this way um yeah but uh it, at, at the same it's, time it's also this thing that i think like a lot of feminism has to contend with which is like w- what do you do with the woman who seemingly wants to like still just like remain the uh possession of her husband <laughs> right yeah um, and just like, like no, expressing that as her free. desires. Like I'm telling yeah. you, you want to be free. Um, um, yeah. And th- there's like a certain, we can still think through like, no, this is still like a better position to be taking, but there's still like, uh, there's something that has to be contended with there. Yeah. Right. Um, as someone who does like stuff within trans liberationist stuff, there, there are things around like, how do you actually talk to the person who like, really does want to be the u.s soldier who's like the trans person right yeah (laughs) um and like how do you like break them out of the systems that they're in um and there's always like to some degree a certain like like especially how do you avoid falling into like condescension and how do you fall into like assuming that you know the best and and not like actually necessarily yeah, like I yeah, wouldn't, you... I would, I don't know if I'd call it violence, but there is a certain force involved in that, like that is not entirely comfortable. <laughs> yeah, um, which I think is coming up here, and th- the other thing that I think is happening here that we we've touched on as well, because so much of what um, Utena is saying is like, Anthe wants to be a normal girl. Anthony wants to be an ordinary girl. Can't you just see like, she doesn't want to be a part of this Rose bride system. Um, which again, that I think is even more unclear than some of the stuff we get in episode 12 is more clearly showing that Anthony might want to be with Utena, but I think there are lots of reasons why Anthony could be with Utena that still involve. And she wants to be the Rose bride. Um, like we still don't know enough about what the, even this game as a whole is like really about, to fully even know like why is it even that we we might feel more comfortable saying anthe does actually want to be with utena what's the reason for that is it because anthe believes that utena will be able to free her from it or is there something else going on that like still remains an open question um and in some ways like i i also want to say i'm like further doing a tangent before i get back to my a point that i was making <laughs> 
I think if we are taking the saga as a whole, um, there is this open question and it's going to continue to deal with it. But I think especially for like these 13 episodes, um, to some degree, the point of it is that within a system like this, you can never truly know someone like Anthe's actual true desires and intentions because she is such a part of the system. Mm -hmm. Um, That the system is like, to some degree, defining all of it in a way where um, what her true intentions are, like, it is such a difficult question because of the way that like her true intentions can also be informed by the system that she's a part of. But if she was a part of a different system, she might have other desires and intentions, but then would that still be hers? Like, I think all of that is actually a a key part of this. Like for me, I was talking about this in episode up to episode 13 is not the like oh this is a core mystery that we are going to get the like official answer to and we're like trying to solve it it is like the uncertainty around ever understanding anyone's like true desires and intentions when they are a part of a a system that is like to some degree trying to predetermine what their desires and intentions are supposed to be is always going to be a difficult and fraught thing where i don't know if you know, maybe we will have a better feeling by the time we get to the end of the series of exactly what are like Anthe's desires and intentions. But I think especially for these 13 episodes, there's a certain amount of like the point of the show at this point for me is that there is this system and that system makes her intentions and desires um, there. We could not get a clean answer ever. The show could not give us a clear answer, at least within this arc, of what are Anthe's like full, true intentions and desires in like an uncomplicated way. Um, yeah, that's but that's a, a really <laughs> like all, all all I'll add is like that's a fantastic point, and I think we can apply that to everybody. Um, yeah, we can apply that in our like the way that we're talking about masculinity as well. Yeah, this is a show that I think is is really, really um, intensely aware of the way that systems, like, to some degree predetermine um, the the intentions and desires of the people within them. Um, And is, like, specifically exploring that. The other point that I was making that, like, let me try to return to was, you know, Utena is asserting this, like, Anthony wants to be normal, she wants to be an ordinary girl throughout episode 11. And then episode 12 is specifically challenging... Like, Utena being an ordinary girl, Utena being a quote-unquote normal girl, as Wakaba asserts and Utena eventually agrees, is not actually, like, what desirable. Utena should be. Is Yeah, it's not desirable. And so, that also then calls into question when Utena is like, Anthe, just say that you want to be an ordinary girl, and she... Like, just say what you really want. She doesn't say anything. And then just say that you want to be an ordinary girl. And she says that it calls into question because to some degree, like maybe what Anthe wants to be is not an ordinary girl, but is still different than the Rose Bride. Mm -hmm. Um, That is also being like, I think by 12, like what's happening in 12 is to some degree calling all of that in 11 into question. Um, Because the whole like normal or ordinary and then like the rose bride system is being figured in one way in 11 and then overturned in 12 or like complicated in 12 um that again like 
I think we then have to consider when we think about what are Anthe's responses when Utena says, don't you want to be an ordinary girl? Um, yeah. But yeah, that, that was the, the point that I was originally making before I completely uh, tangented over to another point. <laughs> no, that's great. And I think I think we can go even deeper on that because I have some ideas about, I think we can get a little bit closer to like, not a definitive answer, um, but to like excavating what's going on there um, by, I have some thoughts on episode nine. Um, I'm going to see if I can articulate them um, in, in a way that, like... Uh, one One thing I will say, just knowing... I don't want to, like, prefigure too much about what's going to happen in later episodes, but I think as we talk about Sionji, uh, a framing that will be useful, just knowing where the series is going to go next, is that specifically, I think, what's happening with Sionji in these episodes is talking about like especially the the dual episode with the flashback and everything is that actually like a lot of Sionji's um supposed desires and intentions in the series which up until this point have been like he's just kind of been abusive and seems to want to possess Anthe but it here is being configured as Sionji is actually deeply competitive with Toga mm-hmm. and wants the rose bride because having the rose bride means he's like beat Toga and so a lot of Sionji's relationship in all of this is actually being tied to Toga. And I think us keeping that frame that I think is set up in nine will be helpful when we get into later episodes. Um, because at the very least, I don't think this is a spoiler. Toga is going to continue to be a significant character in Ugh. the series. <laughs> um, um, I also just want to quick say a popular ship at the time, like back in high school when I was watching this was Utena and Toga and fuck that. <laughs> Um, yeah. But that was a popular ship in in certain anime communities. So Rough. Um, that uh, <laughs> if you uh, if anyone needs like needs an idea of how bad things were uh, in those communities, that that basically that does it right there. Yeah, um, in to some degree, advertising around Utena figured that as like the primary like. In the obscuring of the queer content, part of it was a lot of the materials were Toga and Utena together, um, instead of it being like Anthe and Utena, which is it seems to be the actual more accurate ship to perhaps show in, and like a lot of modern, um, both advertising as well as just like fan. Like if you're on Twitter and you see people talking about Utena, you're going to be seeing Anthe and Utena together as like the ship that's like being used to sell sell the series, yeah. um, either in like actual merchandising ways or by like fan communities um yeah well that's commercially viable now (laughs) but Um, in the past the commercially viable one and that a lot of fan communities latched onto was toga and nutena so what's especially egregious about that and this is just like a little tangent but what's especially egregious about that is that the toga utena relationship is like is a subject within the series like within this episode arc and any like critical reading of this episode arc like can very clearly discern that the show is like not putting this forward as a healthy or viable like repairing um so like even aside from like just the basic fact of the straight washing like it's it's completely fails (laughs) 
like to convey that it distorts the content of the show in like yeah a incredibly like fucked up way um but anyway um yeah so, sayonji and also toga yeah well i'm, I'm gonna i think i'm gonna talk more about the flashback like uh overall so last episode we're trying i think we were kind of trying to talk around like the presence of fable um in this series and and how how prominent like the background of the fable is and like what the meaning of that is um in conjunction with like the setting of the show being this like world that is uh has smashed together like quotidian elements such as like your standard like slice of life school like anime with the presence like the physical presence of like all of these mythic uh like these real like real mythic uh like artifacts and traces and forces um all existing within the same world um and also again this setting is like oh it's kind of like this time out of history like we don't know when or where like this is taking place um the i think the flashback is really uh important for like developing all of this uh this web of like connections um the flashback complicates this further by literalizing like the events of the fable with the actual characters of the show so now like the fable is recapitulated but it's grounded as like the real past of like toga and utena and sayonji um in a way that like this grounding like is legitimate but in and of itself complicated um so like sayonji is remembering these events as real um toga seems to have some recollection of this um because he's like using knowledge from this like this past that he wouldn't be privy to otherwise um, yeah. in his Although, attempts to he's still using it after he specifically hears from Juri that the reason why Utena is here is because of a prince. Um, yeah, but he also knows stuff about, like, it's at least hinted that he is, like, like he knows stuff about the ring and, like, the, like, the recreation of, like, the shot of the prince, like, in the fable of the prince consoling the princess, like, his, like the near kiss that he has with Utena. He's like recreating this like movement. Yeah. Um, and it's but then like, we also get in the flashback, him like lifting up her hair. Like when he actually sees her in the coffin, he does not give her a kiss, at least in the flashback. He just lifts up her hair, which again, we don't know if Toko goes back. Sayonji is unsure of this. Yeah. Um, but we get so, her, him lifting up his, her hair, which gets mirrored in the way that he's like creepy with her earlier on yeah um, so it, it it's it's complicated <laughs> yeah 
Um, we like, also continue to get the prince that we see in the fairy tale is the prince who descends from the, the tower. And that, somewhat jumping ahead, we'll talk a little bit about like episode 13 at the end, does actually appear in episode 13. And is confirmed to be a real person. Like, yeah. Yeah. In um, some weird liminal space, but... <laughs> Yeah. So, so what I'm getting at is like, is I'm not. Uh, this flashback is like occupying still this like this kind of liminal space of like that. It's not clearly like demarcated or sensible um, as to whether like oh this is the literal past um, or this is somehow like a variation of like you know, of this myth that is projecting these characters, um, but not the literal past. Um, it, yeah, it's to, simultaneously both. Yeah. Um, to, to some degree, some of like what I was bringing up to is around this, like th- there is this um, view of history that says that like all myths are actually referring to historical events that have just become mythologized that like Odin was an actual King who existed at some point And the myths around Odin are, um, you know, related to something else. Uh, yeah. or, you know, we're about it like a King and that like, you know, the story that's being told is, is mythologizing them in some way, but really they're just powerful enough Kings to like inspire people to this greatness where they've like elevated them in their mind to gods. Um, this is like a, a way of history that's being approached. And I think is being played with in this by there is enough, like if we take this flashback to be real, which again is also like, it is a flashback in, in that way, it's still a contested space. But if we take this flashback to be real, there are enough factual things that would exist in it. that You could tie to the fable to say, Ah, Utena, the fable and what happened with Utena is based on this actual event that was different. It was not like this same mythologized thing, but that's where this comes from. And that actually like the prince that Utena has been dreaming of the whole time is in fact Toga. But there's enough other stuff that's being figured in the presence that calls that reading into question. But some of that stuff is stuff that is happening within the present that still feels mythic, like the prince descending from the castle right. um, and stuff around that. And so, like, yeah, I, so, I this is kind of what you're saying as well. But I just want to, like, fully break down the ways that this is. Um, there is this reading of this is the historical event that inspired the fable that is like Utena's story of why she decided to become a prince. So and that version, like that reading gets used by Toga to like, as part of this plot, there's other stuff that contradicts that it. And like the, the series is intentional about how that is like continues to be contested. So yes. Um, but I actually want to go in like a slightly different direction with this that I think is like a little bit more fruitful for um, tying this all together. Um, so th- this is going to be like a theory bullshit section, just so everyone's aware. Um, so there is a, uh, and I apologize because I didn't put this in the notes. So like you're being blindsided with this. Um, I didn't think I was going to, I didn't plan to talk about it, but we're here. So, um, 
there is a uh, a theorist named Eliad, who I don't know if you're familiar with or not, um, but uh, he's one of the more prominent like um, like 20th century scholars of comparative religion, um, and he, in specific, uh, he has a theory about like his theories about um, the function of myth and like history um and like sacred and profane time um that i want to discuss maybe not all like this episode um but i just want to bring them in because i think they provide like actually a very useful framework um that helps like interpret some of the stuff that's um going on here um so basically one of Eliad's ideas is this idea of like eternal return, which is not like it, as distinct from like another uh, variation of eternal return, which is like um, more known in philosophy. Um, he has a kind of specific formulation, which is that um, he conceives of like the function of myth or religion um, as like a transcendent experience that is allowing people to, um, when they perform certain rituals, uh, religious rituals, they are like transcending historical time and like quotidian existence uh, to access like um, a like essentially to access eternity um, as a way of like reconciling uh, in various fashions, like reconciling the lived experience of history to like something greater. Um, to like eternity itself um and uh myth is like a thing that is uh persists as like a structure of experience um because it like is something that uh continues to be like uh reactualized like through religion um in a way that's actually like highly significant um, for people to like make meaning of their lives as opposed to just like uh, having only like having to cope just with like what he calls the terror of history, which is just like, oh yeah, like my life is just like completely subject to forces greater than me that I have basically no control over. And like all of these horrors are like, you know, just contingencies and like various other accidents. Um, so, uh, anyway, that's like, I'm not going to go any further into it now. Um, but I'm just going to put this here because I think it's very important for the flashback, um, and for Utena, like as a whole so far, the way that this myth is functioning, like, um, the way that I think the series of, uh, the series is like, playing with this framework. Um, I don't think it's strictly dramatizing it in a one-to-one fashion. Um, It's very, like, um, it's setting up a relation that is, like, uh, enacting, like, a lot of the same um, dynamics that Eliot is putting forth, while also, like, playing with this idea um, in some complicated ways. 
Uh, and I think like the way that um, the repetitions, for example, that we see um, repeated sequences, like the dual sequence, um, the way that like real events continue to reoccur, um, the way that like the this mythic past seems to flip between like unreality and reality um how it's like instantiated in these characters and in their interactions um in various ways and then kind of um at at various moments um and is remembered by these characters in different ways um is all like i think related to uh, a similar dynamic as what like Eliot is talking about um (laughs) i'm I, I've been laughing throughout this a little bit because um, are you sure you haven't watched the entire series? <laughs> um, um, no, I'm. I'm <laughs> I have not watched the entire series. If what I'm saying is like from what from that, I know I'm either way off base or like right on the mark. So I so I'm laughing because um, there there are readings of Utena that I think are not what the show is going to be doing that are around like what is truly going on in Utena? Like what's the actual like uh, metaphysical lore reasons behind what's happening. Um, and this is, we're just not a, a podcast that is like going to go into like, ah, here is the, the metaphysics of what is happening in Evangelion that explains why these weird things are happening. The we angels are, are actually to say, humans yeah. or born at the same time as humans and are just yeah. like, like, yeah, <laughs> we, we are instead going to say like, how does this stuff figure into like theoretical ways of thinking about human existence and yada, yada. Um, and there is a there is a read of Utena that has to do with time. Time is an image that that recurs a lot and has even recurred up till this point. Um, I haven't been sure to what degree to pull it out because I know when we get to the Black Rose Saga, this stuff is going to be um, pulled out even further. And so that's kind of why I'm laughing because I know you haven't watched Black Rose Saga yet, and yet like you're going to watch that and you're going to be like, okay, the myth of eternal return. <laughs> Like, yeah. let's get into this. Um, um, like, you are you are setting this up without knowing what Black Rose Saga is, and yet knowing that this is actually probably a good text to, to think about this, and to think about it in, like, a more critical way. Okay. Um, but Perfect. I do want to quick, like, figure some of the time, because there is this stuff that you're immediately drawing out about, like, the myth, here's the past, and then, like, the mythologized past, or whatever, can like, I, this tension that we're talking about. Can I, can I uh, talk... I just yeah. have like, a, yeah, just let, I have a couple more things to say and then, um, like I'll, I'll let you go. But the reason I'm bringing this in, not only because I am like completely convinced that this is the right text, <laughs> um, to, to bring in for this discussion, which thanks for confirming. Um, but what we see in episode nine, like is this, what I specifically want to draw out is the refrain that Sionji, like, continues to bring up, which is something, quote unquote, something eternal. Like, he believes that Toga has consoled Utena by showing her something eternal, right? So the girl, like, yeah. the little girl Utena is dealing with, like, the death of her parents, this trauma, uh, you know, that, like, could be caused by whatever, we don't know. Um, but she's dealing with this trauma of death. Uh, and Toga consoles her by 
supposedly showing her quote unquote something eternal. Um, something eternal drawing on Eliade, uh, I think we can interpret this to be like a meaning beyond history, a meaning beyond death. Um, and the flashback is like, with this refrain, it's linking the mythical past of the fable uh, with the idea of eternity um, and that somehow this crux of like, you know, experiencing eternity is like related to the juncture between the mythical past and like history. Um, and what we see is that all of these characters uh, or, or most of them um, are driven by this desire to like access the eternal. Um, Sionji, uh, with respect to what you're saying about his competition with Toga, um, which, you know, I think is, is important. Um, but we also, in episode nine, we also see him being like, he, he thinks that Toga has shown, uh, Utena something eternal and he wants to do that too. And there's like, there's a competitiveness of like, Oh, I want to do it because Toga did it. But there's also like a clear, real fascination with like, eternity that he is like fixated on um and in episode nine he tries to like transpose the same dynamic he tries to do what toga did with utena in the flashback by kidnapping anthe and bringing her to the castle um in the flashback you know toga and utena meet in the castle he's trying to recreate this by repeating this same type of event um again like i think it's pretty I don't need to go into it any, any more. Like, I set that up. Um, it's clear what's happening there. Um, but Utena is also, like, doing this, where this becomes more clear in the dynamic with Toga that we're going to talk about in the next episodes. But, like, the ep- this episode actually tells us that, I think it's Jury reveals, like, that she came to this school specifically because she wants to meet the prince. Um to like reactualize this mythic past of the fable where she originally met him, you know, she wants to meet him again and re-experience this, uh, you know, etc. Um, and the reason I went on this big tangent is because I think we can look at Anthe in the same regard as well, where like the quasi-religious framework of like the whole end of the world conspiracy like her role as Rose Bride, like the role of Rose Bride as an archetype and like the archetype as part of like this larger religious framework, I I read it as like, you know, um, reenacting a religious ritual, uh, religious ritual um, to like continue to pull from Iliad, like Anthe by being the Rose Bride is like reenacting this like religious performance. She's performing this like role of the archetype and literally becoming this archetype um, in a way that the series is showing like has real like mythic power. Um, it's like literalizing like the um, the the power of this thing by showing us all the magic shit about like the sword coming out of her chest and her soul going to the sword, like there is like the series is really strongly asserting like the substance of this uh 
like ritualistic function. Um, and going along with like what we've seen with the other characters, I think one reading that you can make so far is like, Anthe also wants to like, in the same way that these other characters do, like she has a desire to access eternity. Um, and like, even though this like religious system is uh, obviously mark, like the role she's in marks her out for this like oppression it is still part of like in being what it is uh it's it's allowing her this like uh ritualistic like access to um to eternity that is desirable in some way um and uh so i think that's another layer of complication when we're talking about anthe and like what does anthe want that's just a possibility i want to throw out as like, hey, we're seeing this kind of thing with other characters. I think it, uh, this dynamic could help explain like part of Anthea's motivation as well. Um, so, all right, I'm done. <laughs> um, um, yeah, I just want I want to like bring in some of what's happening um, symbolically. I think as well around time because there is this stuff around eternity um, that definitely comes up here, and I think it also to some degree gets tied with. The image of the coffin. Um, both Utena in the coffin and then Anthe in the coffin. Mm-hmm. And then, like, how some of that figures into, like, the the fable or the, the myth of the prince. Um, we, we also have talked about, like, things repeat. We, we see them, you know, we see Utena walking up the stairs to the duel um, and drawing the sword from um, Anthe's chest, or in the case of the duel with with Toga, Toga draws the sword. Um, like we, we see these things like, uh, repeat. So that's also playing with time. One thing that we haven't really talked about. Um, and it's something that I think it's a thing that people have like quote unquote reads about what's happening there that, um, I am a little less like interested into the specific read of like, Oh, this is what Miki is measuring. But Miki, we continue to get as like a thing that happens. Miki is taking, is taking the minutes of the student council meeting, which involves like a stopwatch. And we see shots repeatedly of Miki with the stopwatch, which is again, pointing towards time, something going on with time. Um, a, a thing too, that I think I, I, I was doing a little bit of look like research into this just to like, see if there was stuff that, people said that was actually interesting um the part that i think was actually the the funniest and most interesting is um one in a uh interview i think they said that they tied the number that's shown on the stopwatch to something within the actual animation process which i believe is actually the length of a line of like a spoken of like spoken dialogue before miki shows it and there is a joke, I believe, in the manga. I haven't gotten to this far because I'm still reading through the manga. But that what Miki is recording, um, or maybe it was the manga artist said this, but what Miki is recording on the stopwatch is the length of time that he hated a member of the student council. <laughs> Which, again, <laughs> like, the the people who made this show, um, like Bay Papas, like the, the um, group, 
often have these kind of effusive or non-committal or um, kind of like trollish or uh, like impish answers to a lot of questions that people will have about the series. Um, so none of this is like, oh, so what's really happening is it's the length of a line of dialogue and it's how long Miki hated them. Um but I think there's like a certain amount to which that was probably part of the joke while they were doing it was that they were doing lengths of dialogue and it being things that like Miki kind of hates the student council. <laughs> um, but what I do think is interesting about it is the fact that in order to do this, they would have had to like, normally you will animate something and then like uh, have some of this stuff planned out. And then like, you know, you might record dialogue and everything. But what was happening was that they were specifically referencing something in the animation process. And so the part that I find interesting about it is the fact that they are also tying into one of the things that they're playing with in terms of time is this notion of animation itself. Um, And so like, again, I think this is another part that maybe we'll have interesting things as we go on. Maybe we won't, but like, um, that, that is another figuring of like time and, um, sometimes also like cyclical time is talked about in reference to Tenna, which again mm-hmm. also ties into like the myth of the eternal, uh, return. Um, the other ones, this is kind of jumping the gun, but, um, we get this image towards the very end of episode 13 of a butterfly pinned under glass, um, which again is another image that's pointing towards some sort of like, eternal thing um and that image is going to like be developed further in the black rose saga um so there there's stuff that's happening around time and like images around time that i think will have interesting things to talk about as we continue to go forward um so i'm I'm kind of glad that like you've already picked up on this and that we can we can bring it up here and then further develop it but there's also a certain amount where i'm like yeah there's a lot going on with time (laughs) Yeah. Um, and I Wait think you made a, some very good points and we will, I'm really glad that you already have this text brought up <laughs> because we are, we, I'm sure we will return to it as we continue to go. <laughs> okay, good, good. Um, yeah, I, I would have been very, uh, I would have been very concerned if I just like went to all, like brought this in and went to all that trouble and you were just like, oh no, that's not, <laughs> you're way off. <laughs> Um, um, one of the things that, I, that is interesting to me, uh, the other series that we've done that you haven't watched any of was 08th MS Team, and there was definitely stuff that you brought up in 08th MS Team where I was like, mm, yeah, they're not going to do anything <laughs> with this, I'm sorry. Um, I feel like Utena has has figured stuff. Also, I, I've maybe set up Utena a little bit more um, as well, but there, I feel like a lot of stuff that you've picked up already, I'm like, okay. Connor gets what this show's gonna be. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Um, Good. Connor doesn't know where all it's going, but <laughs> you know what this show's gonna be, I think. Good. Yeah, I'm I'm um, excited. Uh I'm yeah. Um I'm even more excited now than I was when I was finishing <laughs> episode thirteen and like scribbling furiously about all of this. <laughs> um so good. Good. So, do we do we want to get into um, episode ten? Yeah, um, I think, and, and kind of a little bit around Nanami, especially. Okay, and, and yeah. like how this is being figured. Yeah, um, um, absolutely. I I think it's kind of useful for like moving forward in the series to to some degree like 
think about the um, characters and like kind of where we are leaving them off. Um, Cause I, yeah. the, I, the characters will kind of continue to figure as like part of what, what happens throughout this. Yeah. Um, you can go first if you, any, if you want. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I mean, there's very, like, we can trace out this whole arc of, like, Toga and Nanami. Um, I think for me, like, if, if we wanted to boil it down quickly, we can just be like, this is a, an abusive relationship, basically. Um, yeah. And it's like, a like one instance of like toga's like sociopathy and like his uh the way that he like manipulates women um and then like i think we start to get layers peeled away um especially in this episode um or in this like arc of episodes we start to get layers peeled away of nanami Um, and get a portrait of someone who has been, like, psychologically, like, manipulated, um, basically, like, through most of her life, um, and how she's, like, struggling with that. Yeah, um, the other, like, part part of this, too, is, so, I've talked previously about how, um, I rewatched the, I've, I watched past these first, I watched through the, the black rose saga. Um, like I think while we were doing Ava, maybe, um, because I was trying to think about like, how would I break up, um, this first arc in particular? Um, and I kind of watched through the black rose saga being like, do I feel comfortable doing those as one episode? I feel like we're going to have some long episodes, but that that's okay. Um, we never have this. <laughs> yeah. Um, but <laughs> I, I feel like sort of what, what is going to happen is like it is going to become clear, I think, with some of the other sagas about how do we even structure the, the conversation. Whereas part of what I came to watching like the student console saga is we get to episode 13, which we'll talk about later but like and we get like this clearer like oh they're like figuring this around the duel specifically like we start to get like this clearer sense of how things might be structured within the series as a whole um but i think it's useful to kind of talk about it as like have an episode where some of it is just like whoa i'm reacting to like what this is that what the show is the style is like clearly its own thing um it's doing some interesting things and then kind of have this episode where we can start like putting that together into like okay this was an arc um it's an arc that leaves a lot of questions but that is also an arc that like can stand on its own to some degree as like setting up a bunch of stuff mm-hmm. um and i decided to break it because i i in doing that review is like i think a lot of this is okay to talk about in two parts and one of the parts that was the the main hesitation that i really had um and I decided it just wasn't enough of a hesitation to like counteract the benefit of, of not trying to cover 13 episodes in, in one episode of a podcast, um, especially of a show like this, where we're just going to have a lot of thoughts, uh, especially up front, um, <laughs> was that 
episode 10 and the stuff that's happening around Nanami is tied to some of the stuff that happens around like Nanami and Suabuki in the earlier, like last discussion episode that we had. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it is the one that like Nanami feels the most like for me broken across these two. Like if we want to talk about her complete um, in a way that like Toga kind of shows up and we already recognize that he was creepy, but most of the stuff around Toga happens here. Sionji gets like, a, a different take on Sionji here in a way that I feel comfortable being like, oh yeah, we just all fucking hate Sionji. And then like, oh, what's going on with Sionji now is kind of weird. Um, yeah. it, it changes a little bit. And yeah, it, at, it's in like concluding. Yeah. But it's reframing it in a way where I felt more comfortable being like, oh, this is just reframing and, and like giving us a different perspective, not in a way that again is like, um, lessening how like clearly abusive and, and terrible he is, but mm-hmm. um, still feels like a clearer split. Whereas Nanami kind of had the stuff that was already set up with Tsuobuki, and that um, when we were talking about that, I, there was a certain degree to uh, which I was like, it's being figured here, but I don't want to know. I don't know if I want to fully get into the way that like what happens in that episode is already figuring that like there is something. Um, in the way that the show is talking about like relationships and, and like these patriarchal systems and how um, Toga is abusive and all of that is also figuring in this like kind of incestuous love that Nanami has for her brother, um, which again gets, gets figured in the like, give me a kiss while we're not like children anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, and, it's and Nanami clearly wants this like, it is at least heavily, heavily um, gestured at that Nanami wants something more romantic than just, I want a big brother to protect me. Yeah. Um, and I'll just quickly interject, like, it's interesting how when that is introduced, it's like vague and a, like played a little bit comedically um, to yeah. the extent where it's like, is this just like a weird gag? Uh, and then arcs into being like concrete. Yeah. And Arxinda also being like, and she killed a kitten and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know. So, um, but yeah, I, Nanami is a is a complex character for me and one that I we will continue to talk about. Um, part of what is so complex about her is, you know, when we get to Black Rose Saga, we're going to continue to see her also being a a character who like comedic plots happen around. Um, she often has these like plots and schemes in the way that Toga also plots and schemes, but Toga's plots and schemes are always like figured in this very um, manipulative, more like serious kind of tone. And that the episodes where it's like really focused around Toga and his schemes and his plots are, are always going into the stuff that we've already talked about around like the way that he's trying to use this myth to like manipulate uh, Utena and like all of that stuff. Yeah. Um, which we'll talk about in a minute. I expect. Yeah. We get a certain, <laughs> we get a certain paralleling in, in Nanami, but they are always kind of these like farcical or comedic plots where it's like, ah, yes, I'm going to embarrass, uh, you know, Anthe by by having snails in her like putting a snail in her pencil box and being like oh this girl has a snail in her pencil box so then it just turns out that like that's the home where Anthe keeps all of her pet snails right and it like (laughs) 
to some degree, even the curry, like we could talk about it being like, is Nanami trying to like kill Lutena? But also you could, some of it is just like, oh, I'm going to make it be Anthea just cooks bad curry because it's so spicy. She doesn't know how to make a well-balanced curry. I'm going to like swap out the wrong spices. Um, and then it just turns out that like actually Anthea's cooking is even more bizarre where it caused this weird Freaky Friday thing just in and of itself. <laughs> um, yeah. Even without like her meddling. Um, There's also the comedic like the repeated uh, comedic device of like tonal, like the show does a hard tonal shift into like, like either like horror or like thriller uh, or like, like some kind of dark drama. Like uh, the, I can't remember what episode it is, but when Nanami's being pursued um, at the, in the Suwabaki episode, it's the first, like the opening of that is like horror. <laughs> Um, yeah. and then the opening of the Curry episode is like, also the tone is very dark. Um, it's like a conspiratorial drama type thing, but then that's turned into like, that's a comedic device ultimately. Yeah. And they're all centered on like Nanami. Yeah. Um, and so episode 10 kind of stands out in the way that like what's happening with Nanami becomes, it moves out of that area of comedy and moves into um and perhaps to some degree in like closer proximity to toga moves into this more serious um nanami's like uh way that she's thinking about and approaching and like um wanting to to do harm to like utena and anthe um becomes folded into like toga's more serious plotting um again it's like heavily implied that toga at least knows if not has intentionally set up that nanami is going to want to challenge utena to a duel yeah um this also gets gets weird because like there's a certain amount to which a lot of what is happening feels like it is being planned by Toga and the series mm-hmm. is kind of gesturing towards it including just the implication of Toga being like oh you know basically like the other duelist is already like determined and we immediately cut to Nanami like being angry at Utena and, and yeah yeah I think it's I, I think it's pretty open and shut mm-hmm. but one of the key things that comes up with it is Anthe giving the gift of the kitten to Toga? And so there's a certain implication of like to which to what degree is Anthe in on this? Um because of that that like element of it. Especially it being the kitten that's a gift that is given. Um and that being like such a core thing of what's going on with Nanami. Um and like the flashback and all of the like anxieties that she has around her brother. Um, it is this thing that like further just makes everything like it, it kind of, it, it's one of these moments. And I think there are other moments in the series, but it's one of the ones that feels the most pronounced to me to which, um, Anthe also seems to be scheming in some yeah. way. Um, and it, it's one of the ones that stands out as like the most odd because of just how much it seems to play into what up until that point feels far more just like Toga's scheme yeah playing out um but that's a, that's a very good point um yeah <laughs> is it like 
Yeah, I, I didn't even consider that. <laughs> um, like, is it anti-scheming or is it just like a weird coincidence that it also happens to be like repeating the past in this like way that happens is constantly happening in this world? <laughs> yeah. Um, and then a lot of this is also figuring into like we we talked in our discussion of Ray Earth about how in some ways in order for Ray Earth, I think to be talking about the things that it's talking about um, part of what they were doing was playing with the conflation of all the different things that love could mean um, that it could be friendship, that it could be like familial love, these sorts of things as well as romantic love. Um, And this is for me, episode 10 is kind of playing with this thing that, you know, Ray Earth did, but I, I don't think was alone in doing this um, as like a, a way for anime to try and talk about like things going on with um, other complicated forms of, of like love, in, most notably queer love, um, because this is like specifically playing with that, but in a far more direct and and like pointed way um, where it's still playing with that like, oh, familial love or romantic love but is like more immediately complicating that um in a way that then also like figures into the way that um the the stuff with tsuobuki is like playing at like this age gap difference between you know nanami as like a what middle schooler i think like nanami's in the and like utena are, are middle school um and then Tsubuki is like an elementary school student. Um, and that was also playing at like familial stuff and in this like more comedic way. Um, but this is like still touching at like, okay, that like here we're like further pushing it into like this, this realm of um, like incestuous attraction, um, which is just like, it's, it's all in this milieu, uh, milieu that, um, I think a lot of anime at the time too was trying to figure out how to grapple with um, notably when clamp did card capture Sakura and was trying to be more intentional about um, like showing other forms of love and, and being uh, after Ray earth, I think to some degree trying to be a little bit more intentional about how we are portraying this was trying to like more intentionally show queer desire but also in it shows a, like, um, I think Sakura and, like, her friends are in elementary school. So, like, uh, an elementary school girl loving her teacher in this, like, desiring way in ways that, like, <laughs> if we ever talk about Sakura is, like, a thing we'll have to kind of talk about. Because it, um, I would say it's not super great in retrospect. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so th- this is one of those weird episodes because I, I think... Utana handles this stuff fairly well, but it, it is still like playing in this genre space that um, happens a lot in anime and often happens far less critically than I think Utena is in anime. Um, this is not the, the only time that we might watch a, a show that like suggests some sort of uh, weird incestuous thing or whatever. <laughs> 
or like other weird bad relationships that I don't actually approve of. Um, <laughs> we will. I would like to do Iron Blooded Orphans at some some point. There's some shit in that. <laughs> well, we. Uh, I think our schedule is pretty clear for 2024. So yeah. Um, yeah, I think you pretty much like encapsulated uh the stuff going on with Nami there. Um and um you know you said Nanami will continue to be present in the series, so um I think we can continue to uh monitor that. I'm gonna I'm gonna it. do like the the slightest of um this isn't really spoilers, it's just a really fun teaser for our next episode of the podcast. Um do you remember what one of your favorite jokes was in Crow High? Oh, the um yeah, shut up, you stupid seal. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, this show will continue to be uh in some ways very crow high. Excellent. And specifically around the Nami. <laughs> okay. Um that so yeah, that that checks out. Um so at least you know It's not a it's not a seal, but there is very specifically a scene that is going to come up in the next episodes that we discuss. Like next time on the podcast. Yeah, I think that I believe might be an inspiration for what happens in Crow Eye. <laughs> yeah, we need to uh once we when we do our Crow High podcast, we need to like somehow. We haven't get... announced that yet, Connor. <laughs> oh, you know. Um what did I say when we do our next episode of Ghost Divers? I yeah, I um, actually let's just say this here because we're gonna keep talking about Cromartie High School and Utena. Um, <laughs> we are planning to do starting next year. Um, uh, there'll be more details forthcoming about like why I selected the time that we're starting and everything. But we're gonna do a podcast where we read through the Crow High manga. Um, basically, not one chapter at a time, but like what would have been published in one magazine, um, which is sometimes multiple chapters at a time um god help us so yeah <laughs> it's gonna take like I, i've plotted it out it's like five years or something um it'll be an, an undertaking i'm hoping yeah. it's a really short podcast i'm hoping we like really even go over a half hour it's gonna um, no, it, yeah it, it will be <laughs> it's gonna be like the the opposite of ghost divers mm-hmm. um but anyway so when we do that we need to uh somehow get in touch with uh someone involved in the production of crow high and be like hey um was utena an influence we need to interview somebody <laughs> uh i'm um i really would like to do that yeah it'd be uh, great if our uh you know the the current i might change the title but the current name of a podcast in my head is pondering Putan. Um, which will be funny if people just come into that podcast because I think it'll be a while before we ever talk about Putan. Yeah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but um, um, that's very my dream is for it to though, get to be yeah, like, my... why the fuck is this podcast named this? Like, oh, uh, read the manga, you know. Yeah, <laughs> listen to the final episode if you want to know. Yeah, um, pondering Putan with Ajishiro Taro and Hachimitsu Boy. Neither of us are those characters. That's just the name of the podcast. Um, yeah. My dream would be for that to get large enough that we could actually get an interview with like Eiji Nonaka. <laughs> well, um, you just gotta you gotta put it out in the universe, you know. Yeah, that's what we're doing. Um, okay, so um, yeah, Nanami. I think I think you you know basically got got it all, um, and we'll see how that continues to unfold. 
Um, this is a good transition point, I think, for um, one of the other big things that I personally wanted to talk about, and I think you probably did too, um, which is the subplot uh, that kind of starts in um, earlier than episode eight, um, but resolves here, um, which is the Toga Utena thing. Um, specifically, Toga like has a plot to um, manipulate Utena into um, like becoming first like buying that he is like her prince uh, second like subordinating her to that princess role um, and then like in so doing like basically you know um, making her like his submissive girlfriend or whatever um, and I think this arc is really significant for like understanding Toga and understanding Utena, um, like in general. Uh, so, you know, there, there's stuff about this. Like, I'm not going to go back into the previous episodes. Um, it kind of starts in the previous episodes. Um, we uh, we see it here in like um, eight, nine, and ten. Um, you know, with, uh, with the flashback, um, Toga kind of continuing to like refer to himself as the prince, um, when he's talking to Utena, like, uh, him continuing to allude to this, like, knowledge, um, to what extent it's real knowledge, uh, we don't know, um, but his knowledge of, like, uh, Utena's past, um, he's trying to, like, make her believe that, um, you know, that he is the prince, um, or that he was the prince or whatever. Um, where this really picks up steam is like around episode, um, uh, 11, well, episode 10 and 11, um, in episode 11, there's this scene where you kind of talked about already where he's hitting, Toga is hitting on Anthe in the Rose Garden, um, as a ploy to make Utena jealous. Um, Utena, like, rushes over and confronts him, uh, and, you know, we already described what happens. Um, but the other side of the scene that we didn't talk about is, like, uh, Utena, um, like, Toga approaches Utena and is like, oh, like, you know, I'm your prince, blah, blah, blah. And is going to like kiss Utena. Um, and it's very clear, at least in my opinion, that like Utena is going to let him kiss her. Um, but he like stops short and denies, like, denies this. Uh, he didn't deny this moment, like, he doesn't kiss her and then he leaves. Um, there is a bifurcation happening for Utena between like her desire to be the princess and her desire to be the prince. Um, It's brought out in the scene where like Utena, the prince wants to like protect Anthe. Um, And so she rushes in when like Toga is going to, is like hitting on her. Um, But Utena, like the princess is invested at this point has become invested in the idea of Toga, like, as her prince. 
um, and more generally, like in the possibility of reactualizing like this mythic past uh, of doing this thing that her, you know, we now know like her whole purpose in coming to the school was to meet the prince. Um, she's starting to believe that Toga is the prince. Uh, and so she's invested in this. Um, in this moment, she's going to let Toga kiss her because uh, she wants to see whether or not it's a real thing. Um, he's talking about like, oh, you know, did it feel like this when the prince like wiped your tears away or whatever um, as he's about to kiss her? And um, I think we understand that like, you know, she wants to see if it does feel the same. Um, there's this desire again for like uh, at reactualizing this moment. Um, of course, this is exactly what Toga wants. Um, and uh, later on um, in 11, uh, this gets fully like fleshed out uh, with the duel um, in that like, the duel is staging this conflict again of like Utena being the prince um, and carrying on with being the prince to the Rose Bride uh, or being like the princess to Toga um, as the prince. Uh, at the end of the duel, like she accesses the power of Dios. Uh, the prince comes down and like merges with her or whatever. Uh, she's literally become the prince, you know, seemingly like, uh, you know, embodying this role and firmly going down this path. Uh, but in the critical moment, um, she, like, instead chooses, uh, you know, the other option, which is Toga, like, presenting himself as the prince. Um, so she doesn't attack him. Uh, basically, like, more or less intentionally, like, loses the duel. Um or, you know, whatever, you know, more or less intentionally. Um, she loses the duel, uh, and then she's, like, uh, you know, devastated afterwards. Um, the, so, the one other thing I want to bring up with some of what happens around um, Utena being devastated, though, as well, is that you can see a certain amount of parallel in what Utena is doing to the way that she's, like... So the way that Anthe is often figured, and I think especially the way that, like, Utena seems to think of Anthe as being, like, passive and is kind of, um, is kind of just doing what is, like, expected and asked of her. Um, it's like she loses the duel and in some ways also becomes, um, in this, like, less clear and direct and, like, following him around, but in some ways also, like, becomes a Rose Bride to Toga, where she's kind of just, like... Throughout all of it, Toga has been referring to Utena as, like, this princess, whereas she's been re referring to herself as prince. Um, and when she is, like, defeated, she she puts on the girl's uniform, which is yeah. then more directly mirroring Anthe's uniform, um, and is moving about, and it is kind of being docile, passive... Um, not really speaking, not really saying what she wants. Um, and it's specifically like when Wakaba turns against like Anthe, but also kind of Toga, but it's clear to see it as Anthe. But like, again, there's the uncertainty of like, who is she even throwing the water at? 
Um, Who does she intend to hit with a glass of water? Is it actually Anthea or was it Toga? We don't really know that. And that like uncertainty is to some degree, I think the point. Um, It's not like they didn't animate it well. And so we don't. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so there's a certain amount of it being like the princess role is this role where she becomes also like more subservient, more like, um, doing what Toga wants in the way that Anthea also has to do what Toga wants. Yeah. Um, and it is specifically having to like go, it's having to reassert what the actual myth is saying, which is that there's this whole myth around the prince gives the ring. Perhaps it was for an engagement, but what she decided to do was not like, Oh, I'm going to grow up and marry the prince. She decided to become a prince herself. Was that really such a good idea? Um, that part of the myth in particular is not at all figured in like the version that we see as like the, um, like it doesn't really come up as part of the version that we see and definitely not the, uh, of the like flashback. Um, and not what like Toga is playing at, which is like, Oh, you are the princess who's supposed to go with the prince. Yeah. Um, Whereas the myth that we see repeated or the, the fable or whatever, you know, we, in synopses, I always just talk about like the fable of the prince, but again, it is specifically about how Utena becomes a prince, um, not how she becomes the princess to this like prince that she's yearning after. Um, and again, that's, that's complicated throughout yeah, this. Immensely, immensely. Cause there is the yeah. aspect of the fable, which is like the promised return, right? The promised yeah. like, like, uh, reunion of like the prince and the princess yeah Um, which is like the thread that you know toga is like trying to leverage and is clearly like desired by utena in some form um but now becomes a conflict like yeah it brought into conflict um and again we we have now seen that the character who you know, in that fable is Utena's prince does figure as like appears to be a real character, although he's in this strange liminal space um, in episode 13, which unless you have a bunch more to talk about, we can like move on to episode 13 soon. Um, Cause I keep kind of gesturing at it. <laughs> Cause there's just weird stuff that's happening there that is pointing towards what's hap- coming next. Um, but um, you know, we- we've talked previously as well about what's then interesting about the fable that this is not if Toga is her prince and the, the fabled reuniting is Utena with Toga. What happens in the fable is this prince who's visually mirrors Anthe. And so the, like Utena is the princess. And then this prince, if you then invert it where um, Utena is the prince, then there is a princess and the other role. Like if you like flipped it around, and the current visual mirror that we have, who is a princess, would be Anthe. Um, and so, and like that specifically, what what is happening with like Toga winning and then Utena reclaiming her identity, which is reclaiming the like, I'm going to wear the boy's uniform, is kind of reclaiming like, I'm going to continue to be the prince, not the princess, mm-hmm. is then also tied to no longer being the princess to a prince, but now being the prince to the princess that's Anthe. Um, And so there's like ways that that is, um, it it is playing with like what's going on with the the fable. And it is also playing on it in a way where um, I think it is important to see 
Utena and Anthe as, um, at least at this point, like, not if we're talking, like, from, from queer perspectives. On one hand, we can see this, like, oh, it's, like, butch and femme, which is, like, uh, established relationship dynamics with a lot of... Not all. There's butch for butch. There's femme for femme. But, like, butch and femme, especially, um, I would say, stereotypically, but also, like, that stereotype is based on a, a certain amount of truth. That there are still lots of lesbians who will take on this more masculine or more feminine role and be in a relationship with someone who's the other uh, side of that. And so, like, you could... That is certainly a reading that is frequently done with Utena and Anthe is like butch and femme lesbian. Here's like how to like fully figure this into a queer thing. But there's also still them playing at like how that's reinscribing um, this more heteronormative. Mm-hmm. It is not like two butch lesbians. It's not two femme lesbians. It's it is specifically still figuring into like this masculine and feminine role, even as Utena is like. Um, defying gender norms to some extent in in doing that, um, which again, all of this is stuff we'll continue to talk about. But <laughs> yeah, but I, I think, think I think it's useful to sort of think about how ten and eleven especially are playing with the fable and how it ties into like also these gender dynamics. Yeah, um, one of the things that I think is interesting with the series is it it pretty much immediately sets up the dynamic of like, okay, here's this like oppressive, you know, patriarchal like system. Uh, here's how these norms are operating um, explicitly, like, or, you know, specifically like zoomed in on the Rosebride thing and then immediately offering like, here is this, you know, Utena as the prince and Anthea as the princess is like the the obvious model of like, oh, this is going to be the way out of this. Um, it yeah. does that pretty much immediately. <laughs> um, and then like, which with a lot of other media, I think, it, you know, that's trying to tell a certain kind of story. That would be like the end point. Uh, we're like, okay, yeah, we finally like, you know, resolve this. And here's like our happy ending. Um, but with Utena, this is like offered as the obvious, like immediate conclusion. Uh, and then like complicated. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in ways like, because even with the myth, like the inversion that you're talking about, like it's absolutely there. Like, I think that's the starting point of like any reading of Utena is you have to start from there. Um but then all of the other stuff we're talking about is like complicating this and it doesn't even cleanly map one to one. Like, um, you know, and I'm, I'm interested to see like how this goes further. Um, and I think one of the things that's, that's useful to, to consider at least is where we're ending off is reasserting like Utena is the prince and is the princess because she wins this duel. Um, and that's like the dynamic as we go into the next arc, as we go into the Black Rose saga, but we've now gone through this process in which we are as an audience, I think expected to now be far more suspect of 
the viability of just, oh, if it's a girl as the prince, that will solve this. Um, if it is a girl as the prince who just like wants to break free of the system, that in and of itself is enough to solve it. Um, and, and we are in many ways seeing Utena get repeatedly tested in that um, and sometimes faltering. And I, at this point, we're not like, I don't know about you. I don't get to the end of episode 12 and go like, oh, well, clearly like, Utena is now doomed to fail because uh, she's still just trying to like be the prince to save Anthe. Um, I still believe in Utena's like desire to do what is right for Anthe, but it it is now set it up in this way where where we are like increasingly aware of the difficulty uh, of breaking from the system that you're like still operating within to try to break from it. Um, the way that the system is continually to try continuing to try to figure. Um, Utena as a part of it and like fold it back into just the way that it operates. Um, and the way in which she's often still unwittingly playing into it, even as she is like perhaps pushing towards something different. Um, and so it really leaves at this point where like she's gone through the, the ringer. She's gone through like the, these testings of her intentions and her desires and her um, ability to try to, to challenge the system. And she does not come out of it unscathed, but also she does not come out of it like defeated and, and broken. And with, again, I, I don't know what your feeling is here. <laughs> My feeling um, is that the series is not setting up that she is doomed to fail at this, but that she's going to need to do more than she has done. Yeah, I I see it as like, in addition to to what you're pointing out, um, the biggest point of tension for me still, or one of them, is it is still an open question for both like Utena and Anthe um, what their relation is like to this like mythic past and like how... And, and, like, what that means for them um, and how they're engaging with it. Like, specifically, I don't know at this point, like, Utena has reaffirmed, like, her, like, nominal identification with, like, the role of the prince, like, in line with that aspect of the fable. Uh, I don't know if, like, does she still want to like meet the prince again? Right? Like just yeah. because that like desire, which we know to be true, um was like had a like false manifestation um with Toga that was be, then became like, you know, a a challenge for her to overcome and she does overcome. Like is this still something that she wants? Um, and is that still like structuring her experience, you know, in, in a way? Um, or is that like, is it just a clean, like, okay, yeah, like, you know, I've now bifurcated this myth and like the, the second half of like, oh, me choosing to become the prince is like what defines me now. And I've disengaged from like the first half, uh, which is like, this experience of meeting of meeting the prince and you know like this desire for the reunion 
Um, is it like cleanly broken up like that? I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah. I don't think like the the incident with Togo like pro- like a- as a false like manifestation or as a false opportunity uh, seeming opportunity to like reactualize this. Um, I don't think that invalidates it, right? Um, yeah. So that's uh, I think that's another point of tension um, that maybe will come into play. I don't know. Um. I'm happy to move on to episode 13 now. Uh, yeah. Um, <clears throat> As we talk I, about lingering questions. <laughs> um, I, I will uh, also add um, the end of episode 11. Uh, I think this is just tying together some of the things we've talked about, but um, this crisis that Utena has when she loses the duel and loses Anthe, um it's not only like she's not only upset because of like everything that means for Anthe and the fact that she's like, you know, lost her, the friendship, like the romantic bond, whatever. Um, it's also like Anthe being reabsorbed into like this, the traditional Rosebride like role and configuration that is represented with Toga versus like, whatever possibility there is uh, with her being the Rose Bride to Atena um, is like, uh, again, the subsumption of like her individual agency, will, personality um, to like the system, to these larger powers. Um, and uh, I think this is like particularly impactful for Utena because that has the exact same thing has literally just happened to Utena. Um, in that, like, she becomes powerless um, against her own desire for, like, becoming the princess, um, her own desire for, like, reactualizing this past. Um, so, you know, it's it's hitting on both those levels. And I think, you know, um, this is a really uh, important moment for, like, understanding Utena. Um, and also why people who... Uh, who ship uh, Toga and Utena are uh, should be put in jail. <laughs> um, the other thing I forgot to mention before we got on to 13, um, I kind of alluded to this when we were talking about the synopsis, but um, the, the part where Anthe blesses the sword involves her getting on, down on her knees in front of um, Toga and then like delicately holding the tip of the sword and putting her mouth to it in a way that I think is very intentionally playing at images of like a blowjob. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it is a very sexualized scene in a way that um, this series is not, I think had like, this is I think one of the most sexualized images that has occurred in this series to this point. Yeah. Um, and there, there's a lot of stuff around that as well with it being like Toga, Utena being um, upset about like Anthe being controlled by Toga, um, all of that. I don't have like a full take beyond that. It's something that um, I think we will have opportunity to, to think more about. Um, but yeah, I, I wanted to bring that up because I, 
I didn't put that in the synopsis, but I think like if someone is watching along and did not pick that up, <laughs> it's perhaps worth thinking about the way that some of that stuff was getting more intensely sexualized um, in episode 12. Than but there's I, I also think. to like connect that with a point that, that you also made um, that the, those interactions are sexualized. Like, and I'm thinking about the, the other like sword thing where it's pulled out, like, yeah, you know, from between her breasts. Um, so the stuff with like the rose bride, like the the prince or whatever, and the sword is like heavily sexualized. Yeah. Um. So episode thirteen. Unless you have final objections. No. No. Um, no. So this is called tracing a path, and it's just a completely boring, uh, uninteresting clip show. We just get clips of the past twelve episodes. Um, nothing weird happens. There's no like reframing of what happened with anything. Yeah, it's just literally a clip show. Um, so yeah, next time. We'll- Thanks for listening. <laughs> um so again we talked about this with ava um and how while doing a clip show they were like interestingly contextualizing some of what happened um this one i think even goes further um so we we get like a, a person who we will learn in the post credit scene the like next time on scene we learn is anthe's brother enters the forest and like goes up the stairs and then somehow like gets in the castle goes up into the castle or something um and there meets with who we've been referring to as utena's prince um still not going to like give anything else away about this character because we don't get a name or anything but we see him uh he's sitting on top of a uh globe or like uh, an orb, which I believe some of the dialogue may suggest is an egg or something that will crack. I think mm-hmm. there's stuff that is referring to the cracking of the egg and the the shattering of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's sitting on top of it. <laughs> Interesting. Um, and they talk about the seven duels that have occurred. Um, and they, they go through and we see doors or like stained glass window kind of door things, um, that are like in the stained glass, there are these names for it. Um, I'm terrible at French, so I don't know if you're better at pronouncing French. Um, but just to go back through the seven duels here, um, there's amitié or friendship again don't know how to speak french at all uh this was sionji the first duel against sionji um the stained glass is green and again sionji his hair color and uh rose are green second one is choice i'm not even gonna bother with the french anymore. i think it's like chua. One, yeah chua uh choice which is uh the second duel with sionji um and again, green. Um, so the friendship one was the one that was um, around Wakaba, uh, if you don't recall, um, where Utena was basically just challenging Sionji because he put up the, the love letter that Wakaba had written. Um, whereas Choice is the one where um, she was planning to just lose the duel and not partake in the system anymore. Um, and then at the last moment, um, either chose to, or was possessed by a prince or something, um, 
the the fact that it's figured as choice might suggest that she chose to like continue to take part but the question of choice at least is centered around that um the third duel reason this is the duel against miki um the stained glass is blue miki is uh, of course also blue haired and has a, a blue rose um and this was the one that again was figured around kind of like why do you want um anthe both of them kind of having this position of like i want anthe to be free and and fighting about it and as we talked last time um i think we we can be more critical of how miki thinks that he's quote-unquote freeing anthe but it does call utena's intentions um into question a little bit as well yeah um the fourth duel um amor love uh this was jury um again window orange jury has orange hair and uh, an orange rose and that's the whole like her loving the the um girl and you know her backstory um her in some ways like we we talked about kind of some of the tension of it seeming like jury maybe thought that Utena was doing this because she wanted to be like able to be in love with a girl um, and that girl being Anthe and was kind of upset that it seemed like Utena didn't actually care about the duels at all or like care about possessing um, Anthe. But so supposedly this is the, the duel around love. Um, number five, adoration. Uh, Nanami, who of course has yellow hair and a yellow rose. And so the, the stained glass window is yellow. Um, we've talked about this in this previous episode, so I'm, I'm not going to go into more detail here, but I think mm-hmm. we can think about how this relates to adoration. Um, number six, the duel, the only one in here that she loses, um, is the duel of conviction, which is against Toga, who of course, red hair, red rose and red stained glass. Um, and then the last one self, which is the one that I think needs the least explanation um they talk about self a lot given what we just discussed (laughs) yeah in fact i think they start on ah that was just the duel of self now let's go back through the previous six and they like don't really talk about that one um they don't really talk about the duel of self but is of course toga um red hair red rose red window um i'm bringing in color here because one an image that we see as this episode comes to the, to the, to a close is a black rose and a glass box that is in a, like the, within the glass boxes, there's a pool of water and the black rose is like floating in it. Um, we also see a black rose signet ring. And so there is black rose. Like I've already revealed next episodes as the black rose saga. Utena of all of the duelists is the only one who has a different hair color than rose color. She has pink hair, but her rose it, during all the duels is white, which of course is the like opposite of black. Um, so bringing this in as a, a color thing to think about as we're continuing. Um, the other image that I already brought up, the butterfly pinned under glass. This is going to get developed further. And um, in addition to we get the the character who we've kind of seen who's the prince um utena's prince and there's some weird stuff going on with him that's pointing towards some of what the student council was perhaps talking about but we don't really get much more about him other than he seems to be to some degree invested in and perhaps once 
Lieutenant Owen is kind of suggested by some of the, the conversation they have. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. There's discussion there's about, other... like, your power can be revived in, like, in Utena or something. Yeah. Um, and then we get this other character who, uh, throughout it, the discussion, we don't get named. Um, but in the next time on sequence, we see, and sorry if you did not watch the next time on sequence, but I'm going to talk about it here because I think... Part, part of why I was like, let, let's just do the saga and the way they talk about the saga is that they like are figuring what's happening next. And I think this is just interesting to even have the context of if you are watching this anime one week at a time, you would get that to that next time on and be like, what the f-? <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. We learn that this, this other um, character is Anthe's brother. And it is in a sequence where... Um, Anthe and Utena are going to meet her brother. They go up an elevator um, and go to talk to him. And as they're going to talk to him, Anthe says to Utena, he doesn't know anything about the dual stuff, so don't talk to him about it. We just watched an episode where he is talking to <laughs> Utena's prince about the duels. <laughs> um, so, like, yeah. I, I want to, like, further highlight that. And I wanted to be able to just really say... This is Anthe's brother before we get to the Black Rose saga. Just to people like have this in mind. They remember this as they go to watch the next ones. Yeah. Um, we also see in that next time on a third character who until this next time on hasn't shown up at all. Um, we've just briefly see him. We don't get too much context around him. Um, he will be a, a, another significant character for uh, the Black Rose saga arc. And he's a uh, man who has pink hair that's also straight and like kind of similar to Utena's. It's not as long, um, but we can very clearly see a visual parallel happening between Utena and this this new character. Um, so, you know, next time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you have um, thoughts about episode 13 before we, we just throw to next episode, but. Um, um, two continuations of like thoughts we've already had. Um, so, uh, first, uh, you mentioned like Anthea's motivations, uh, stuff that she may or may not be doing behind the scenes. Um, in episode 13, it, in my interpretation, um, so Anthea's brother is like talking to Tennis Prince, recapping all of the events that have transpired. And then the shot of him leaving shows him with another figure uh, in, in silhouette, um, but the other figure uh, looks quite a bit like Anthe's silhouette, uh, and then it immediately cuts to a scene of Anthe returning to her shared room with Utena. Uh, Utena asking Anthe, like, where have you been? And Anthe being like, oh, <laughs> and then not answering the question. Um, yeah. So uh, some mystery there around Anthe. Um, and, uh, additionally, um, briefly revisiting our, uh, discussion about, like, don't be deceived, uh, that these, that these things have been resolved, um, that conclusions have been reached. Um, I think episode 13 does a good job of being, like, so much of episode 12 is... Um, presented as like a break. Um, so I think most noticeably the dual sequence uh, for the first time so far in the series, uh, we get like a different dual sequence. 
Um, it's not the same, like, you know, um, stair, like walking up the stairs, you know, you know, the sequence by now. Yeah. Um, the, the music is different. Yeah. Um, I, I will pause to be like, the soundtrack of this series is amazing. Um, it really is. It goes like all the way from like Saint Etienne to like Koenji Hyake. It's fucking amazing. <laughs> um, so, but anyway, um, that like the change in the dual sequence is very noticeable, uh, very significant. Like it's clear that there's a break happening. Um, and, uh, you know, again, there's various other like types of breaks that we, um, you know, seem to be making, uh, with this, like this idea of, um, destiny or like the past being repeated. Uh, but episode 13, uh, instantly recontextualizes like all the events that we've seen already, uh, within like a larger mythic framework that at this point is unknown to us. Um, but we learn that no, like, in fact, what happened in episode 12 was not like a break with destiny or a break with like the, you know, uh, the larger like ritual plan, uh, it is all according to plan. It's just this larger plan <laughs> um, that we're not aware of right now. Um, yeah. So, you know, like it's like a nesting doll of like a mythic narratives that, <laughs> that we have happening here um, where we just now have like stepped up to, you know, we've now accessed the second higher level um, where like, oh, yes, uh, everything that we've seen is actually just part of this larger thing, um, which... Uh, again like reopens all of these same questions <laughs> um that the show may have deceived you into thinking uh were resolved um but clearly are not yeah um which perhaps makes sense because we have a lot more episodes to get through <laughs> yeah it'd be pretty damn boring if <laughs> it was uh if it wasn't resolved so um yeah but Hey, yeah. you know, we'll see where it goes. I'll see where it goes. You already know. Yeah. <laughs> um, maybe some of our listeners are watching it for the first time along with me. Um, if so, I hope you're ex- as excited as I am. Um, so, next episode, we will be talking about the Black Rose Saga, uh, which is episodes 14 through 23. So it'll be 10 episodes. Uh, returning to the 10 episodes at a time from when we were doing Ray Earth. Um, nice. So, yeah, it'll be episodes 14 through 23 of Revolutionary Girl Utena. Um, if you have questions for the podcast, you can write into ghosttodiversepod at gmail.com. And, um, you know, you feel free to write in about, like, anything that we've talked about previously as well. Um, I just want to say that here. Um Obviously, we love talking about like the series that we discussed when we do the question bucket for the series. But if you have thoughts now about Ray Earth or Evangelion or Cromarty High School, um, all Hell, things even, that I think could relate Ghost to, the shell. <laughs> yeah, hey, or Ghost in the Shell. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I will say, if you write in about Ghost in the Shell, I might save it for when we do the qu- question bucket for um, second gig. But 
you know, that, that'll be coming up. Um, I think there are some parts where, like, if you have questions about OAuth MS Team, maybe I will just save it for when we do um, first Gundam. But still, feel free to write in, and we'll either do it, like, the next available question bucket, or I might be like, oh, we already have something on the schedule. It'll be a little while, but we'll answer it then. Yeah. Um, Basically, we'll and if, answer if that's anything. the case, I might even respond to you and just say, like, hey, if you're fine, I'm going to save this for, like... <laughs> A question bucket that will be next year. <laughs> um, but yeah. Otherwise, uh, please support the Export Audio Network. If you go to exportaud.io, you will hopefully be redirected to patreon.com slash exportaudio. At the time of recording, um, the redirects are, are broken, but I'm assuming Autumn's going to fix it soon. Um, reach out to the, the company and figure out why they're not working. But if exportaud.io does not work, you could go to patreon.com slash exportaudio. Um, you can also listen to my other podcast, Export or Ornate Stairwells, <laughs> by going to exportaud.io slash Ornate Stairwells. Um, I don't remember what the actual Pinecast link is for that, so hopefully the redirect works. I didn't know you were on the uh, Export Audio podcast. Um, I still have not guessed it on the actual podcast export audio, but um, I'm sure it will happen at some point. Only a matter of time. Yeah. I feel like it'll become far more doable when um, Autumn and Nora move, which by the time you, dear listener, are listening to this may have already happened. It's possible that you'll be like, what the hell? (laughs) Nia was on export audio like a month ago, (laughs) just because of how long the the gap is between when we record and when we're release episodes for ghost divers um anyway you can follow the podcast at ghost divers pod at uh on twitter um and usually see me tweeting memes about whatever i'm currently watching and not what the episodes coming out are currently about so (laughs) sorry about all the utena memes right now uh those of you who are listening to ray earth in the past um at this point what, what are we doing after utena at this point i'm just like tweeting a bunch of shit about ghost in the shell i guess while you're yeah i think we're doing episode. yeah we're, we're doing second gig i think yeah um yeah. actually when you're listening to this we are still recording utena I, we probably just recorded the adolescence of utena yeah we're gonna be doing utena for a while yeah it's a long series but it's it's good um oh, yeah, yeah i guess you know next up just so people know we're gonna be doing Ghost in the Shell, standalone complex, second gig. Um, and also, like, the movies. Um, anyway. Yeah. Stay, stay tuned for that. <laughs> I'm sure we're going to have a lot of thoughts about that. Also, stay tuned for our Cromarty High School um, manga podcast coming next year. Um <laughs> Also, in terms of special podcasts, um, if you want to read uh, Independent People for the New Year's Eve bonus episode, or I guess New Year's Day is when I'm going to release it, um, and and writing questions for that, you know, you still have time. Um, This episode's coming out, what, November 26th? You have, like, Mm -hmm. a little less than a month, but that you you can read Independent People in that time. Yeah, that's probably be recording, like, you know... No earlier than December 21st, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Because it's going to be during Yule when I have off. Yeah. Um, I'm sure we'll have nothing like that won't be related at all to like any of the things we talk about in Utena. Um, (laughs) Definitely not anything about like mythic past. Uh, 
structuring our experience uh, <laughs> of of like lived history, um, yeah, for better or for worse. Nothing um, about um, <laughs> like the way that systems predetermine the actions of those who are members of the system. Yeah, the desires um, and actions. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at VoxMomnia. Where can people follow you? Uh, y'all can follow me at Rabelais, R-A-B-B-L-E-A-I-S. Um, I never spell VoxMomnia, but it's F-O-X-M-O-M-N-I-A. Um, you can also follow me at GarfRedAloud, where I read Garfield aloud into a camera. Oh, also, um, I made a TikTok. It's VoxMomnia, but uh, I just cross-post all of my GarfRedAloud post to tiktok there so if if you are on tiktok and prefer it you can watch garfred aloud there instead um i think that's it i think so do we have anything else uh tune in next time yeah for more utena um we, we already said that part connor bye yeah. bye everyone <laughs> bye and tune in next time for more utena
Time dot is clap. Okay, let's do it. Before you stop recording and forget. <laughs> no, I, I I got it this time. I'm I'm all uh, I got the I got the procedure. Uh, after like 50, 60 hours of to- podcasting total, more than more than that, right? <laughs> yeah, we've we have done a lot of podcasting. Yeah, um, I think I finally got it though. Um, Forty-six. Ooh, that was a tight one, but I felt good about it. Okay, and it's good. fine. I <laughs> I mostly just use it to like make sure that the the um change that I do with your time makes sense. Okay, cool. Um, anyway, um, I'm gonna stop recording and and go soon because I have to go to the bathroom again. <laughs> Okay, now um, recording. Just a sec. Okay. Um, I want to do a drink check real quick. Nice. So, I don't know if you're drinking anything. I am. Uh, what have you got? I have the same beer that I was drinking uh, last time we recorded, which is a... Uh, I'm not going to say the, like, dumb, like name that they have for it but it's a golden cream ale uh yeah made by this company in um northern kentucky which is pretty you know right across the river from me and it's the same six pack that i had so uh (laughs) which just tells you how how often i drink yeah um I'm going to send you a photo of the the first drink, just because I think seeing the glass, um, as well as a reminder that while recording in my closet slash podcast studio, I have a poster that came with the manga version of Utena, of just like Utena and Anthe, like naked in a bed of roses, basically. (laughs) Um, And I just decided to hang it up for recording. Um, I'm just going to, I'm just going to send this. So this what I'm drinking right now, it's it's technically a cocktail, but um, it's just elderflower liqueur and sparkling wine. Um, mm-hmm. But it's like a, a floral sparkling wine. It feels very appropriate to, um, you know, Utena as a show. Um, yeah, and then also the glass. <laughs> yeah. Well, and also just like, I feel like wine is kind of a, <clears throat> like, Utena as a show feels like a wine show to me. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's you know? it's got that elegance and like yeah. the deep sophistication of like, hey, you could really uh, like, you know, you could really get super into wine and just like be learning about wine forever if you want to. Yeah, um, and then it is an etched glass that has like little stars and and like leaves and these like crisscrossing lines. Um, but I feel like it's kind of evocative of like the the frames that happen sometimes. So, mm-hmm. um, and then when I finish this, I'm going to be opening up. Um, so, like, I think there were three breweries in Chicago. Yeah, Middlebrow, um, Erknoy, and Solemn Oath did a beer together called City League Champions. Um, it's a grisette, and the the label on it is a bunch of furries playing baseball. Uh-huh. Um, and it, this beer, like, a grisette is, like, going to be a slightly more... Um, 
you know, it, like it's not like a, a very weedy beer. So some of that I think kind of hits like this feels a little bit more like the the cocktail with the wine that I'm having feels very anthy. This beer feels a little bit more Utena. So that's why I, I kind of figured I would have both of them. Yeah. Um, okay. I love that. So yeah, you're so you're very on theme with your, with your drinks. <laughs> and I'm just like, what's what's shitty enough? You know, what's, what, what's shitty enough to not distract me from this, um, this, you know, important content yeah. we're creating. Um, I, I don't know when you're going to visit me next. Otherwise I would have gotten you that shitty light beer that I, I sent you a photo of. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I was thinking about like soon, but then I think I'm just really bad about communicating. Um, cause I was like, I was thinking about soon and then I was like, ah, yeah, but COVID's getting worse. Like she's not going to want to come like you know, I'm not. I'm not putting this on you. Like, yeah. Even it's not, now that I'm saying it, it sounds like it, but you know, I'm just like I don't want it to be like weird for me to visit this time. So, yeah. Um, I mean, I in my mind I'm like soon, but then I'm like I I don't know. I have nothing concrete. Yeah. Um, I don't know if there's any other stuff you and I I mean it is like yeah COVID kind of sucks it's getting worse again yeah Um, I mean if like if you're cool with me visiting then that I'll just clear that obstacle in my mind um Mm -hmm. because uh I've been talking to Jess and they want me to like come visit too and I would stay with I would stay with Jess because I know space is kind of at a premium in the uh in your well we have one. a we have a fold-out bed now okay um, um but we do well, have a toddler as well so that's right right so i and i didn't want to assume that uh it, i know that complicates the guest equation um it's it's one thing when it's autumn but like you know it's a whole other thing when it's me like yeah um so yeah just yeah, my two best friends, but it's completely different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, and and I understand. I I understand that. Um, so, uh, but yeah. Um, well, let's uh, let's make it happen soon. As long as you know, you're not uncomfortable with it. Um, yeah, I I will double check with Emily, but I think yep. it would be fine. Okay, sweet. Um. um Okay. Really, the bigger thing is just going to big events. Like, um, there is. I'm even more tempted by this than the fire walk with me that we were going to try and do. They're going to do a screening of Mulholland Drive, and Rebecca Del Rio is going to perform. Oh, Um, nice! And like that feels just like they had actresses from Fire Walk with me when they screened it. And that would still be cool, but like seeing a recording or something of that Q and A, I feel like I'm not missing missing as much as like actually being there for a performance by Rebe- uh, Rebecca Del Rio before the the movie that like figures a performance by her as a significant point. <laughs> yeah. Um. But I guess watching a recording of a Rebecca Del Rio performance is uh thematic with that movie but 
um, yeah, I mean, I think it would be cool to to attend that. Um, yeah, I'm sure it would be fine, but um, you know, it's... The, the bigger thing that I might try and do is they're going to do some um, drive-in movies at like a drive-in theater in Chicago during oh, October, um, including two of the movies that we're going to do for. Uh, ornate stairwells which is suspiria and well, there's many people hear this we'll have already done these episodes but uh suspiria and suicide circle um yeah suspiria is an amazing film yeah um i assumed you're doing the original and not the remake yeah <laughs> yes <laughs> the remake is is actually like intriguing um it's worth watching uh although you know I it like I, I mean it doesn't really hold up to the original obviously but um they they take it in a very different direction um yeah and they try and do some interesting things I actually don't even, I'm talking like you've not you haven't seen it you may have seen it now um I haven't and, seen the remake the other thing is because I know um Suspiria is one of the ones that that Autumn's bringing and I think that they may not have seen it and want to see it. I don't remember if it's one that they've seen or not. I oh, know yeah. that that house they haven't seen and they're bringing it because they want to see it. Um, but yeah. Yeah. The remake is worth watching. Um, it's uh, yeah, it's very different. Uh, they take it in some, uh, some very different directions, but uh, there's some bold choices that, um, I respect, even though I didn't really, um, I didn't feel like it all like clicked for me. Yeah. Um, has some high highs though. The final sequence is fucking awesome. Um, yeah. So anyway. But yeah. If it is the case that they have not seen Suspiria, I definitely wouldn't want to watch the remake before they watch the original. <laughs> oh yeah, no. yeah. That would, that would like, that would mess everything up really bad. Yeah. Um, because the remake has a bunch of like, I'm not gonna say anything specific to spoil it, but the remake is trying to like add a bunch of like explicit, um, like historical context. Uh, and if you watch that first, you'd be like, and then you watch the original, you'd be like, what the fuck is like, <laughs> what the fuck is this shit about? <laughs> Uh, yeah, like the, if you watch the original, you're like, okay, I have a, I don't know what this is about, but in a way that like I do, like I can understand it, but moving from the remake to the original would be like, where the fuck, like, yeah, I don't know. Sorry. It doesn't make any sense if you haven't seen the remake, but, um, you should watch it and let me know what you think. Okay. Um, uh, Georg and Craig. Oh, yeah. I, like, just never use them anymore. Um, oh, really? Yeah. I mean, I, I invite them, but, like, I just feel like if you are recording an Audacity, um, it just seems like we haven't lost. I don't know. I It's, it's still something if. that would be good to do, but, like, because if you ever, like, if one of us ever did lose the audio... Um, but yeah, I just, I feel like we, we never need the backup from Craig. Yeah. Um, yeah. Even when I like totally fuck up my audio, it's still apparently 
works. So, yeah, the uh, episode that went out um, yesterday <laughs> that was, was the, the one, one where where you recorded on your webcam. It was your webcam mic. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and but like I I think one I don't know if that was also the mic that was being pulled for. Um, I guess I didn't check if that's what Gearc did, but also just the quality of the audio with Gearc is always worse. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, I haven't listened. I haven't like checked on spot checked that one yet. But um, when I spot checked <laughs> the audio in a panic like the night of, it it seemed okay. Like it's not as good, mm. obviously, but um, you know, it was there. Yeah. Um. It is funny because we are joking about how we recorded it all on the same night, and it's just like your audio is just completely different. <laughs> That's great. Um, you're still like audible, but it is it is notable that your audio is different. So yeah, well, you know, it's like when it's like when a band records like two albums and like one like they record one in one year and they record one in the next year, and then the audio quality yeah. is like completely different. It's like wait. <laughs> This is a very drastic change. That's basically what we did. Um, do we want to do a clap? Time that is clap. Yes. Uh, 17. It just feels like a lucky number. I felt good about that. Okay. I didn't hear your clap, but that's okay. Yeah, I again, I think, like, I didn't hear yours. I think that um, Discord usually, like, there's stuff that is supposed to make the audio sound better to the other person. Um, and I think it, it, one of the things that it does, just, like... It gates some of the, the loud sounds. Um, it, like, has detection, I think, actually, that, like, detects things that would be clicking sounds, like, in case there's, like, other clicking that was happening due to like you know poor connection or like something going on with the the like mic or something um but then it it removes claps so um yeah you don't hear the claps <laughs> over discord yeah got it okay um there's a way to turn that off but whatever it's fine um we're not like yeah. using this audio so it's not a big deal um I think we, we got everything else. We're recording. Yeah. Craig is doing backup. Your mic is correct. It's <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> I'll never um, make that fucking mistake again. That was so scary. For, I was like, for oh my your... god, she's gonna fucking kill me. <laughs> um, for Yule, I, one of the things I'm gonna ask for is um, a little bit of a better mic. Um, nice. And so I, I looked at the website of like, oh, okay, here, let me like look through these couple options from this company. Um, I'm not going to say any of the company names on here. They don't get free advertisement. Not but a I was like, let me, yeah, let me look through some of these, these uh, options just to like make sure that the one that I'm thinking of is the one that's like actually the one that I want because they have a couple different mics. Um, and so I looked at that website once one night and now literally every single website I go to, it's just ads for those mics. <laughs> Oh my god! <laughs> I'm like, yes, I am going to buy it. Or you can stop more, now, more, okay? Yeah. <laughs> more accurately, I'm going to tell someone else to buy it as a gift for me. Um, 
either Emily or my parents. But yeah. Yeah. Um, Lem would never shell out for something like that. Lem is such a freelancer. Lem's so fucking cheap. Yeah. Um, do you want to go to uh, uh, episode 10? Or, um... Um, yeah, th- there's a certain amount of... Uh, we can we can jump around a little bit. Um, I might run to the bathroom real quick. Okay, sounds good. Um, I will. I'll be back. I am back. Okay, cool. So am I. Just looking at this meme that my uncle posted on on facebook oh, oh boy um <laughs> hold on let me let me send this to you this is one of those where i'm just like man i could write an essay about like this meme and like my conservative uncle posting it I think this America still exists. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you can still sit under a tree by a by a creek with a, uh, <laughs> with a fishing pole and a dog. Yeah, with a fishing pole and a dog, and your your son presumably sitting next to you. Yeah, um, yeah. That tells you a lot about well, like the psychology of conservative America that yeah. <laughs> they don't think this <laughs> they don't think this is possible anymore. Yeah. So taking inventory of like what is not in that photo is really is really telling. It's like, yeah, here's like two white men with like you know Yeah. Um anyway. <laughs> we don't need to go into that one. I think it's pretty <laughs> self evident. Um <laughs> 